We are a citizen organized, a citizen run, a citizen funded initiative. We don't have a single large donor. We're doing this all on our own, almost exclusively by volunteers. We want to start a national dialogue. COVID-19 pandemic has been a unprecedented event as far as Canada, the countries in the world are concerned. The fact that in Canada, people are still afraid. It has not been disclosed uh, to the general public the contents of the uh, material. So in that moment, she framed every unvaccinated person, including her guest on the show, as a danger to public safety. What's interesting also is that nobody can name a single real world vaccine success story where COVID rates went down at a nursing home or a funeral home after the vax rollout. You're in a cancer clinic and you feel abused by everybody because they, they didn't want to know you. They wanted to know your mask. They wanted to make personal contact with your mask and that was the horror of it. How did we get to this point? A nation that is afraid to let its people judge the truth and falsehood in an open market is a nation that is afraid of its people. That's still where we are in this nation, Canada, because no government, no authority wants to inquire into its handling or mishandling of the last three years response to COVID-19. And existential threat to our democratic way of life occurred towards the democracies in the 1930s. It was called the Great Depression. But when Franklin Delano Roosevelt made his inaugural address as President of the United States in 1932, he didn't tell people to be afraid and stay home. He told Congress and the free world that we had nothing to fear but fear itself. We heard a, a bit uh, yesterday from Shelley Hipson about how data and statistics were manipulated to make people feel afraid in this province, Nova Scotia. No great nation prospers and grows on a platform of fear, but as a virus spread out from the Wuhan, from Wuhan, China, governments chose to opt for fear and to ignore their own previously approved and adopted pandemic plans, which instructed them to protect the vulnerable, allow others to carry on their lives normally, and maintain public confidence. They panicked into a war against a virus a war which all reason and experience told them was futile and doomed to failure. And the first casualty of war is the truth. Many citizens might say the COVID crisis is over. I just want to forget about it, move on. The problem with forgetting about it and moving on is that governments may never relinquish power and control once they have it. Coercive measures such as injection mandates to travel by air are only suspended to be brought back whenever government deems necessary. 
And in many settings, uh, including courts and hospitals, mask mandates are still in effect. Despite uh, the evidence of uh, myriads of studies, the latest one being the Cochrane, famous Cochrane Review, the definitive study on masking, which reviewed 78 uh, randomized control trials and concluded that masking was completely ineffective, masking of any type. Uh, that came out just two or three weeks ago. And they continue to double down on their advocacy of injections, whose efficacy data you will hear has turned negative and whose safety is in heavy scientific dispute. No government in Canada has had the courage to hold independent hearings into their response to the COVID crisis and learn lessons for the future. What went right and what went wrong? Were we told the truth? Did politicians, officials, and media promote and enforce a single government-approved narrative, a dominant narrative, about SARS-CoV-2 and suppress alternative competing narratives based in science? If mistakes were made, what reforms should be implemented to reduce the chance of those or similar mistakes occurring in the future? Commissioners, at the outset, we should recognize and acknowledge the pain of those many people who lost family and friends to COVID, but we should also recognize and acknowledge the pain of so many people who have lost family and friends to the measures taken to combat COVID. You will hear evidence that these measures include the unscientific suppression of cheap and effective early treatment, deaths from loneliness, despair and addiction caused by brutal lockdown and isolation methods borrowed from prison discipline, and the unprecedented levels of injury and death caused by experimental injectable products which did not fit the traditional definition of vaccine and which governments still promotes. We should also acknowledge the injuries of those who struggle with prolonged symptoms of infection injury from the injectable products and psychological injury from the campaign of fear and isolation. In the face of the COVID crisis upheaval since early 2020, it's only reasonable that this inquiry ask the question, governments don't want to ask, why did so many Canadians die or fall ill, both from SARS-CoV-2 and from the efforts to mitigate its damage? Were our national public health responses based on the best possible evidence? And was that evolving evidence constantly reevaluated to optimize the outcomes for the population as a whole? Were any COVID countermeasures actually counterproductive? And did they result in more harm than good? In other words, did governments use cost-benefit analysis? <coughs> Excuse me cost-benefit analysis to evaluate their actions or were their actions, as many citizens suspect, the product of unspoken agendas for profit, power, 
and control. Answers to such questions are critical to the future of Canadian democracy, to the individual rights and freedoms which sustain Canadian democracy, and to our future economic well-being. In the absence of government interest in commissioning independent public hearings, a network of volunteers from across this great country has come together out of a desire for a better Canada. The National Citizens' Inquiry has, is entirely citizen-funded and citizen-run, and is therefore entirely independent of any government influence. You commissioners have sworn to go where the evidence takes you and to make your findings and recommendations based on the evidence you will hear during this inquiry, and the evidence will be disturbing. The witnesses who have come forward to this inquiry told us, almost without exception, that they have done so because they want to give voice to a perspective which has been ignored and suppressed in the government-sponsored narrative enforced by mainstream media. The Commission has invited a large number of politicians, public health officials, and other leaders of the official response to the COVID crisis to appear before you and give evidence at a hearing venue convenient to them, either in person or by video link. If they fail to appear and explain to Canadians their side of the narrative, its basis in science, and why their actions were justified and continue to be justified, it will be because they do not wish to account for their actions to the citizens of Canada. It will not be because they were censored, silenced, or deplatformed by this inquiry. If leaders of the COVID crisis response do choose to explain themselves to Canadians, they could be asked for their response to the following issue. The AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine program was suspended in Canada due to its risk of causing severe adverse events. <coughs> Excuse me, the main one was blood clotting. In one in 55,000 inoculated adults, one in 55,000. Why has the same safety standard not been applied to suspend the mRNA program? Dr. Joseph Freiman, from whom we will hear this afternoon, calculated with colleagues a 1 in 550 rate of serious adverse events, as revealed by reinterpretation of the clinical trial data which is the supposed gold standard for knowledge about a new drug. The study by Dr. Freiman was published in the prestigious journal Vaccine and cited by the Surgeon General of Florida in his recent letter to the FDA. In suspending the AstraZeneca program, our regulator established a safety standard for itself for triggering suspension of a COVID injection program. This standard was one serious adverse event in 55,000 inoculations. 
Peer-reviewed estimates of the serious adverse event rate for the mRNA vaccines are orders of magnitude higher than 1 in 55,000. Why have we failed to apply the safety standard we applied to AstraZeneca products to the mRNA injection program? The issue of the safety and efficacy of the injectable products is a leading battleground of government propaganda and a focus of mainstream media suppression of the tsunami of scientific information which contradicts government claims. Government no longer claims that the mRNA injectable products stop infection transmission. You will hear evidence and, in fact, have already heard evidence from Dr. McCullough that these injections work by the injection of instructions to our cells to produce a foreign protein on their surface. This foreign protein, the spike protein, is produced in unknown amounts for an unknown time and is interpreted by the body as a toxin. You will hear that the shots have tremendous quality variation in the manufacturing process. Whether uh, they, rather, they are in fact experimental, no matter how they might be classified legally, with no medium or long-term information about their risks. You will hear evidence from a Canadian expert, Dr. Denny Rancor that these experimental injections have killed more than 10 million people worldwide, more than 10 million people worldwide. You will hear that scientific peer-reviewed literature has delivered the following verdict. An abundance of studies has shown the mRNA vaccines are neither safe nor effective, but outright dangerous. Outright dangerous. Commissioners, the life, safety, and health of our friends and family, the viability of our democracy, and our future national prosperity rest on your deliberations. The Charter of Rights and Freedoms states that Canada is founded on principles that recognize the supremacy of God and the rule of law. God speed you in your task, and may God and the rule of law prevail. Thank you. So that's a big task. Now I think we have our first witness for the day. Sir, do you uh, affirm to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? I do. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Thank you. Can you please state your full name for us? Yes. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me here today. Uh, my name is Daryl Shelley. <coughs> I'm from Stephenville, Newfoundland. Um, 
relocated to Toronto in 2004, where I lived for 16 years, returning to Stephenville uh, in December 2020 during the COVID pandemic. Before you moved, before you moved to Newfoundland, you said you you uh, resided elsewhere, and can you tell me more about that? What precipitated yeah, so you move to Newfoundland? I'm sorry. I lived in Ontario for 16 years. I uh, left Newfoundland as a young man, as many do, to seek employment opportunities. Um, and I ended up starting a business called Mighty Mouth Staffing, which uh, was founded in early 2017. I was a freelance audiovisual technician in Ontario, and uh, self-employed businessman the entire time I was up there. And uh, after... Um, when the COVID pandemic struck, it, it really took a dent in our business. We specialize in technical labor and the installation of uh, events for producers, venues, shopping malls, public spaces. And we also provide skilled trades and construction when required. So when the live event industry shut down, it completely destroyed our business. Terry, did you take any preventative steps to try and mitigate the potential impact of lockdowns or restrictions for your business? Yes, yes, we did. Um, so we ended up ordering KM95 masks, which are uh, PPE from Asia, which is on par with the N95 masks you would get here for uh, what we call respirators, um, and we wanted those because they were supposed to keep our workers safe if we had to continue to work through the pandemic. So we ordered thousands of them. Um, we got an importation license, um, and we were ready to continue throughout the pandemic. We saw that it was coming before they had started to announce the emergencies in March 2020. So we were ordering these things about six to eight weeks before that time. When we started out in 2020, we were uh, at just had peaked in our uh, uh, what was going to be our best year ever based on contracts we were landing. We had about 20 freelancers that were working close to full time and 80 freelancers on call. We were on a gross uh, track for over 1.5 million in 2020 from a business that started with only $1,500 of one client back in 2017. So you build your business from 2017 to 2020 basically from $1,500 income to projected revenue of $1.5 million. Is that right? That's correct, yeah. And uh, every, everything that we did was related to the event business at that time, the live event industry. So uh, when the lockdowns happened in March, we had to tell everybody we're finished for now. We'll be back maybe in a few months. We weren't sure. Um, so we held on to those KN95 masks and we just put it as a tool in our arsenal, Chris, like the same as you would with, um, you know, your boots, uh, your steel-toed boots, your hard hats or whatnot. And we figured we'll, we'll get back to work at some point in time. But when June hit, we realized we weren't going back to work, that this was, we were going to be permanently locked out of work here. And Doug Ford, because we were on Ontario, he kept calling for PPE, PPE. And they kept telling people, they kept telling the public not to buy masks. That they only needed them for the government. Well, when the government says something like that, it makes me want to make sure that I've got enough for myself first. So, um, but knowing we weren't going to need them, I had enough for my family. I had more than enough for my family. I teamed up with another friend of mine who owns a company called Portable UBC, and we decided to take all of our PPE 
and donated to long-term care because Doug Ford was calling for help with long-term care, long-term care. And we saw these videos on, on the news of people in long-term care who were suffering. I don't know if you remember, the military had been called in. So we decided, okay, we're gonna do our part. We're gonna donate these things. Now, they were calling for procurement. We could have made money. I said, no, uh, it's not the right thing to do. We're in a pandemic. We're all in this together, right? That was the idea, was to help each other. So if I could help brothers and sisters in long-term care facilities get through their day, and uh, I had medical grade respirators that could help them, I was gonna donate them. Uh, and then we had a big snag when we actually decided to do that, which was the very first sign for me that there was a lot more to this pandemic that had to do with financial gain than it did do to do about keeping people safe. How many masks were you donating or looking to donate? So we had about 5,000 of them uh, between us and I had reached out to OPSEU, which is the union that handles long-term care facilities in Ontario. Uh, and I reached out to the presidents, uh, Warren Smokey Thomas and Eduardo Eddie Almeida, the first vice president and treasurer. Um, they wouldn't get back to me for the first few times. I tried calling, I tried repeated emails. Finally, I got a little bit aggressive with one of my emails and I did get a response. And their answer was to give it to the government, at which point I said, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in giving them to you. And I said, we will bring them ourselves. We have an importation uh, license. These are legitimate. Taxes have been paid on them. Can we just bring them to you and help your people out? And they just uh, completely uh, shadow banned. They, they, they blocked us. They didn't want to talk to us. They ignored us. It was over. Um, I didn't understand why. So I went and did some investigating. I found it on their website. They were selling branded cloth masks with their logo on it, non-medical grade, to their own union employees. And that's the only PPE they were letting them have, which weren't going to keep them safe from the so-called virus. And here we were with medical grade, uh, medical grade respirators and importation license and excess of 5,000 masks that we didn't need. And now, on a side note, OPSEU is seeking uh, nearly $6 million that they allege that Warren Smokey Thomas and Eddie Alameda had stolen from union executives over the years. So I don't know if they were making money off these masks, but it sure as hell put a red flag up for me. And we decided eventually to uh, donate them to a uh, homeless uh, shelter called Homes First in Toronto. So we gave it to them, but uh, it was pretty amazing that they were calling for help in long-term care. And here we were and coming to save the day. And we, we weren't able to do it because they wouldn't let us. And you were, you were shut down from providing masks to the elderly population particularly, like you said, long-term care facilities, which were certainly at high-risk uh, category. So thank you for yep. that. Uh, Terry, what happened to your business? Because you, you said you you built it up from like, a, like the dream, so to speak, you know, with, from very small income to a projected income of $1.5 and And the second question, actually, let, let me preface that. I'm sorry. Um, your business had contracts. You had employees, 20 contractors and you also said you had 80, up to 80 subcontractors when the lockdowns when the restrictions came what happened to your company what happened to those employees to those to those contractors and subcontractors so the audiovisual community and event staffing community in the city they were they had these 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 uh, online sort of events where they were trying to rally people to uh, you know, let's be all of this together and let's stay home and let's stay safe and all that. But after a while, after a few months, we started to see that this really wasn't the case. Um, you know, Walmart was open. The liquor store was open. Uh, people down in the United States 
in a lot of places were still open. Um, a lot of technicians that were highly skilled moved to the United States temporarily. Some of them left the business completely. A lot of them uh, switched trades or left the town because, I mean, living in southern Ontario near the GTA is ridiculously expensive. You need to keep making money every day or you're going to go under. Um, and by the time we got said and done with it, I think we managed to pick up some work in 2020. Um, our one and a half million projection ended up turning into about nine grand in sales from March to the year end. And we almost lost our company. We managed to survive because we started an online pet supply business and dog breeding business when we came back to Newfoundland called Shelly's Pet Palace. And uh, that was that we were able to, to, to do that mostly online. And now in 2023, we, uh, we are just starting to get Mighty Mouse staffing back to pre-pandemic levels. And we're hoping for a good year, but we've had to rebuild our entire crew and network because a lot of people have exited the business, which was sad because we lost a lot of really good people from that industry. Uh, no question a significant impact on the staffing because people would have found different trades, different avenues of revenue, which may not return to the business. Uh, certainly a significant impact. And to go from a projection of 1.5 million to an actual, actual recognized uh, revenue of $9,000 is simply incredible. And what were you able to regain some of the clients that you lost because of the significant reduction uh, in your ability to provide the services? So thankfully, yes, we managed to keep a couple of our clients. One of them uh, does a lot of work in shopping malls, which managed to remain open. So that little bit of work floated us during the, uh, the, the, the tough years, the two tough years that just that we just went through. Um, but it was no like, I mean, it was nowhere near what we were at before. I mean, it was literally I had to put myself on the jobs uh, to travel back, uh, which was quite a struggle traveling throughout the pandemic with the various restrictions changing on a weekly basis, not knowing if we were even going to be able to travel. So uh, kind of I wanted to go into telling my little story about how I had to actually come home and try to take care of my mother because getting back to the island in Newfoundland during that time was a was a nightmare. Uh, absolutely. Um, and, and Terry, you've uh, you you segued from from the business aspect which affected you and, and your family but I, I want to touch upon your personal story as well uh, you mentioned your mother um, so certainly not a significant life event that impacted you can you tell me more about that yeah Chris so I mean what proceeded what I'm gonna the story I'm gonna tell right now probably brought me to where I am right now my political and professional ambitions um, because I couldn't believe that this could happen in Canadian soil. I couldn't believe that this could happen in our country. So my mom was having a rough time with her health at the beginning of the year. Uh, we didn't make it home for Christmas in that previous year, so we planned to come back sometime in year 2020 anyway. And in May, mom got sick. May of 2020? 2020, like really sick, more, more than before. And she had to stay in the hospital for a couple of weeks alone. It was really hard on her. She was unable to leave, and she was only allowed one visitor, which was her designated visitor, which was her sister. And during this time, my nephew was born. Uh, there were strict hospital restrictions due to the pandemic and visitation for birth as well. So my mother was unable to witness the birth of her second grandson due to the pandemic restrictions. Um, and the baby was not able to come see her due to the restrictions in the hospitals. And uh, when I think that's when she got diagnosed with cancer, and I think it was a really lonely, difficult time for my mother. And uh, 
I, I regret that I wasn't able to be there for her at that time. Uh, absolutely. I'm very sorry to hear that. Um, how did you feel when you first learned that that you weren't able to visit uh, your mother, you know, going through such end of life stage uh, uh, at this point in time? How did that make well, you feel, Terry? Uh, yeah, uh, we we knew that we might be able to come home if we applied for an exemption. But uh, in May of fifth, two thousand twenty, Bill thirty eight, an act to amend the Public Health uh, Protection and Promotion Act by the Newfoundland government, was uh, was enacted, and this included banning non-residents from entering the province. Uh, however, residents were still able to leave and return. So, if you're from Newfoundland, you can leave and go to Canada. But if you're in Canada, you can't come to Newfoundland. First time I've ever heard of anything like that ever happening. Like, you're not allowed to go into this province, or right? Um, uh, it allowed the police to conduct warrantless searches and detain persons who are suspected of being in contravention to the Public Health Protection and Promotion Act, to enter any premises uh, without a warrant, to take samples, conduct tests, make copies, extracts, photographs, videos, inspect uh, as the inspector considers necessary, and to make available any means to generate and manipulate books and records that are in the machine readable format, such as an electronic form or any means necessary for the inspector uh, with uh, to assess any books and records and no timeline given. So they could just come into your house, take your laptop, leave, and come back three months later and say, we found something in your laptop. Absolutely. There were some there were some very, very crazy. trying times for us. I'm sorry to interrupt you, Terry, but I want to I want to focus back on, on on your mother a little bit, actually. Um, because you, you weren't able to visit with her due to these travel restrictions that were brought in. But were you able to connect with your mother in another way, potentially? Yeah, Chris. Um, yeah, just correct you. It's Daryl on the... Oh, uh, I'm sorry about Darryl. that. Yeah, no problem. Just get that one. Um, so, yeah, like I was just about to get into. Um, so, in May 2020, the Civil Liberties Association wrote to the Attorney General and Minister Andrew Parsons concerning the restrictions put in place by the government. I sent that to my mother. And I said, you know, I don't know if we're going to be able to get home. I don't know what's going on. So June 4th, uh, my wife and I applied for travel exemption to enter the province. And to our surprise, we did get it the next day. Uh, taking care of someone in palliative, palliative care uh, assistance was an option. We chose that option. And we did a lot of teleconferencing, video calls with mom. But we were really worried about traveling through the other Atlantic provinces because we heard about the difficulties other people were having. We didn't know if we were going to be able to get through New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. We didn't know if we were going to be able to uh, even get on the boat, and then they may change that last minute. So uh, mom was doing better throughout the summer and had lots of family and friends to help her as she was going through chemo. So we didn't think it was necessary to really take the risk of trying to travel and maybe maybe getting stopped along the way or something. So we didn't go at the time. And then in the fall, mom took a turn for the worse. Uh, we decided to travel home right away to take care of her full time at that time. But then on November 7, uh, 2020, I had to apply for another exemption because the old one was only valid for 30 days. Now, this 30-day rule was never stated, was never made public. Uh, there was no way to know it. I just I had to inquire because I was going to pack up. I left my condo behind, everything behind uh, to come home. My business was shot, so there was no work happening anyway. Um, and this time I applied for my entire family, and we were planning to travel back on November 23rd. Then on November 13th, I was talking to my mother on Messenger that day. Everything seemed uh, fairly normal and fine. She was on the phone with her sister, I believe, that night. And sometime after midnight, she died in the kitchen. The restrictions that were uh, put in play by the government in Newfoundland and Labrador and the other corresponding Atlantic provinces robbed me of being able to see my mother in her dying days. 
I'm very sorry to hear that, uh, Daryl. Absolutely. Um, as 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 we're coming in uh, towards the end, um, you know, do you want to ask? Were you able to were you able to find some closure after all this with your um, mother's passing? Yes, yes, and no. We weren't sure. Like I said, if our exemption would be valid, but we came home anyway. Um, but at this time, after mom passed away, I, 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 there was no way for me to be able to get back to see the body to say goodbye and do a proper send off. She had to be cremated, cremated pretty quickly. So uh, what we decided to do was to have a wake. And, and I knew that there was a 14 day isolation and I uh, wasn't supposed to go. And some family members said to me, well, you, you know, do it anyway. Another one said, no, you can't. Um, so I didn't tell anybody I was coming back. And no one in town, no friends, no relatives, nobody knew of her wake. She was robbed of that. I didn't know anything about it. I came home, got in, uh, off an airplane full of people, got into a truck completely isolated, went to my house completely isolated, got in the truck, went to the wake, had to put a fake name down uh, uh, to walk in, went in and saw her in an empty room. And to this day, there's people in this town who didn't even know there was a wake. The only other person who went was my brother and his family. Nobody else was there. I didn't even see them because they went in a different time. People were calling me saying, There's, you're going to get arrested if you break the quarantine. I said, my mother's dead. I said, I'm coming back to say goodbye to her body. And, and we paid thousands of dollars for it. I'm going to do it. So I sent her off. It was it was mixed emotions. I was completely alone with no one no one there to confide it. Um, you know, uh, my father was, was, was very helpful by giving me his truck and everything. But it would be people in Newfoundland and Labrador were scared. They were totally petrified. The amount of discrimination I felt during the next few months traveling home, getting on that boat, and coming from Ontario, from Newfoundlanders, my fellow Newfoundlanders was despicable. It was ridiculous. Um, you're talking about a person that hadn't left his condo for almost a, more than half a year. I was never sick. We weren't working. I was isolated most of the time. All I went outside to walk my dog. And the amount of discrimination was ridiculous. The, the government had everybody pitted that the outsiders were going to bring some killer plague to the island of Newfoundland. And everybody was believed that this was going to happen. I heard things like, you're going to be the first case in Steamville. You might infect the entire town. When I came back, I was, I came back on December 1st is when we finally landed. I finally got over with our stuff. Uh, we quarantined for 14 days. The last day of quarantine was my 40th birthday. No one came to visit me on my birthday. We saw very, people called and things like that, but nobody came. It was my last day. Like I said, we saw very little family over Christmas. It took 29 days where I was able to sit down with my brother and discuss my mother's affairs. My government, the government destroyed every, everything and had everybody living in fear. It was so sad. It, people found out we were from Ontario. They would run away from us. And we couldn't get help offloading. I couldn't get help to offload my things, even if I isolated in another room by myself. I was offering somebody $200 an hour to help me offload my stuff after driving from all the way from Ontario, getting harassed by a border guard in New Brunswick who said I couldn't stop, having to take the license plates off my truck and off my trailer. Uh, it took three days to offload that stuff by myself, um, and I had to return to my mother's house full of her belongings. Same towels that she used were still hanging in the bathroom, and nobody to help us. Uh, the intimidation factor was unreal, and uh, I couldn't believe that, it, that, that the people of Newfoundland were so scared and convinced from, that we were going to bring back this plague and kill everybody and it took a long time for us to be able to reconcile that as friends with our neighbors and our families and absolutely get right. back into normal and then we are still reconciling with that so uh thank you terry we we, we are coming short on time yep. um i have no further questions for you i appreciate your time but i'm going to defer to the commissioners if there are any questions uh, that you'd like to ask of uh, daryl 
No? Yes, I'm sorry, there's one question there. I'm just wondering when it comes to the different uh, travel regulations or guidelines in the different provinces, when you mentioned that the, you were harassed in New Brunswick by the border control for patrol, could you just kind of elaborate a little bit further on that? Sure, yeah. It was uh, after driving through Ontario and Quebec with no issues, really. Um, we got to the New Brunswick border at Edmonton, and they had a full lockdown uh, situation with like it was almost like driving into a I've traveled in Europe I've, I've gone from countries to countries France to Switzerland and other places and when you do there are places where they they search you and they lock you down and you know that's understood it felt like that it felt like I was going into another country like I was being questioned about who am I where am I going why am I going there and I had I had my papers I said I'm going on to, to back to Newfoundland um, and uh, she said well you can't stop along the way I said, well, if you know anybody who's got a 5.7 liter V8 with a trailer uh, that can drive all this distance without stopping on, a, on one tank of gas, I'll take two trucks. Thanks. You know, I have my family, uh, my puppies, uh, long drive. We were already tired. We weren't allowed to stop. Uh, and she said, well, if you do stop. And I mean, she pulled over other officers and they started interviewing us. And they were like flashing in the back of our car and looking around and trying to find out what we were doing. And uh they said, if you stop, you, you got to wear a mask, uh, you got to put the gloves on, you can't go inside any building to use the washrooms or anything like that. You can't eat, go straight to Newfoundland and get straight on the boat. Um, and if anybody knows, that's a very long drive. It's hard to do it in one day. It's impossible to do it with families and puppies in a trailer, like I said. So I had to stop. I had to take the license plates off. I had to hide. I had to pay cash most of the time because I was afraid they were going to track my uh, visa or my debit card. I mean, this is early 2020 before they had any of the vaccine passports or anything like that. And we were terrified we didn't know what to do coming into nova scotia they had flashing signs about getting ready getting ready and when we got there there was nothing we just drove right through nova scotia and then went straight to newfoundland it was so bizarre each province had their own set of rules and yeah new brunswick was pretty pretty intimidating she said if you stop for any reason at all we're going to send you back to where you came from so i would go back to ontario where i had no home where i had no condo where i had no company anymore and i wouldn't be able to go and take care of my mother's affairs i basically would be homeless if they decided to turn me around if i didn't cooperate with them Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for taking the time to listen to me today. Thank you, Daryl. Appreciate your time. Can we get uh, Mr. Terry Lap uh, Lapachelle, please? Sorry. Mr. Terry Lapachelle. Thank you, Terry. Good morning. Good morning, Mr. Lapachelle. 
do you, in the testimony you will now give, affirm that you will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? I do. Good morning, Terry. Good morning. Um, I know we've already sort of mentioned it, but can you please give us your full name? I'm sorry? Can you please give us your full name? Yes, my name is Terry LaChapelle. Where do you live, Terry? Uh, right now we live in rural New Brunswick. Uh, and what did you do for a living? I'm a retired military veteran of 21 plus years. Where were you posted, Terry? <laughs> six, let, different, let, six different <laughs> provinces, really. Let, let me let, let's go with the most recent or your, your, your last posting. Right, CFB Trenton. Okay. So uh, before moving to PEI, I'm sorry, to rural New Brunswick, you, your residence was Trenton in Ontario? Correct. What did you do uh, for the military? What was, your, what was your occupation or your capacity? Uh, my occupation was uh, military or... MSC op, mobile support equipment operator, basically a truck driver. Okay. Yeah. I was, uh, I retired in 2018, mid-2018, um, and I started working on the base as a civilian in, <clears throat> sorry, this is a little hard to say, but <laughs> in uh, 2020 um, as a public service. Breathe. Nice and relaxed. Yeah. Right. Now, it always helps to breathe deeply. Take a couple deep breaths, and and we'll go from there. Okay. I'm good. Excellent. Uh, Terry, you 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 retired uh, from the military in 2018, and then took a uh, public service position with the military. Um, is that correct as a public service. Yes, as a civilian. As a civilian. Yeah. Okay. And then you you left that job or let. That you, well, it, you did. You left that job in 2020, you said? In late 2020, yes. What precipitated that? Well, just about, you know, early 19, 2019, early 2020, the, the COVID uh, pandemic was happening. And I listened to a lot of different news outlets, not just mainstream media, but also alternative news outlets. And I was hearing rumors and reading rumors about um, possible injection mandates for all public service employees. My wife also worked on the base as a public service employee and I was watching that really carefully because I was worried, obviously, right, what was going to happen. So between the two of us and my military pension, we were doing fine. I mean, you know, 170000 a year roughly. Uh, we had couple nice vehicles, nice home, completely renovated, uh, you know, camper, pool, hot tub for my back, and everything was going good until uh, the right, I believe in September or October, it was announced uh, from the federal government, you can look it up, it's still on their website, that, uh, yeah, indeed, you know, if uh, no job, no job. So you either take the injection or you'll be placed on indeterminate, leave without pay for public service employees. And this would affect both you and your spouse? Oh, huge. <laughs> you know, when you have a comfortable life and we're just starting to get used to that and then all of a sudden it's gone. So I saw the writing on the wall 
I saw the deadline. It was there in writing. So come back a bit. I knew what was going to happen. I knew what we had to do because there's no way I could afford all of that, you know. Sorry. So you've made a decision. Uh, it sounds as though, and, and please let me know if I'm incorrect, but you said you reviewed documentation. So then you've made a choice not, and then you received documentation from the military that says if you're not vaccinated by a certain date that your employment would effectively be terminated. Right. And right. so, but you've made a decision uh, not to get vaccinated. Is that correct? correct? Because uh, a lot of red flags. I mean, mRNA is nothing new. I'm sure everybody in this room has looked it up, did a little research, whatever. It's decades old technology. And the first red flag to me was, why wasn't it ever brought to market before? And then the push, the push, I mean, coercion? Really? Our coercion to take something that I don't want to take, to, to take a medical procedure I don't want to undergo. Uh, you know, like, you never buy the first model Tesla. You're going to wait until they work out some bugs first, right? That was, and my backup plan was always, well, if I'm wrong, I can always take it. You know. When when you said coercion, um, can you tell me a little bit more about exactly what you mean by that? Well, uh, when the government announced that you either take it or you lose your job or get placed, sorry, not lose your job, get placed on leave without pay for basically forever, um, I, I talked with my wife and I said, you know, we got to sell everything. We have no choice because I can't afford this on a military pension isn't very big, right? <laughs> so. Um, we had to sell the house. Uh, we went down to one vehicle, uh, sold the, the motorcycle, uh, sold everything. I mean, a lot of stuff I couldn't even take with me, the movers wouldn't take. Uh, luckily for us, we did make a little bit of money on the sale uh, of the house, so that kind of, kind of tied us over for a little while. We I hired some movers, we moved uh, back to southern Ontario, back to Niagara. Um, ended up in a small maybe 550 square foot uh, apartment on the third floor. <laughs> Big difference. It's, uh, it's not something I really want to wish on anybody. I mean, it might have been easy, just take it, carry on with my life, but no, no. You felt that based on the research you've conducted and the information available at the time, that it, was, it wasn't safe for you to take? to continue employment uh, rather than potentially, you know, that the prospect of losing your home, your vehicles, everything that you've built up because you had quite a long lengthy career with the uh, military. Right. So, I, well, based on what I was reading, not just, uh, I mean, I watched a little bit of mainstream media, but I try to stay away from it. Mm -hmm. A lot of other alternative sources. I never take anything I see online at face value. You know, you have to kind of read between the lines, use a grocery store method, take what you need and leave the rest, you know, behind. Uh, the stuff I was reading was just like, wow, no, I don't want, I don't even want to take a chance on this right now. So I'm going to wait. I'm going to see what happens. Unfortunately, I didn't have time to wait because the date was on the wall, November 1st, and then November 15th, you're being placed on leave without pay. So we did what we had to do. And it was like, it was really like a punch in the face, you know. Here's an organization I worked for for half my adult life. Okay, when I was in the military, I was medically released. 
I kind of understand that. I mean, you get to a certain point in life where you can't do what you used to do. So, yeah, I couldn't do the soldier thing anymore. That's fine. You know, I understand that. And there were some benefits there for me uh, on retirement. But this, there's just basically nothing. They're taking away two full-time incomes and replacing it with nothing. I mean, we all know what happened with CERB. I didn't even want to go near that because I knew they'd come back to get it. It's just, it's the government after all, right? <laughs> so, yeah. So it, it sounds like your overall experience with the military up to this point has been rather favorable. You enjoyed your career with the military? For the most part. Ups and downs. Well, like any job, right? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. But overall, it was pretty good until these mandates came into effect and then you had to make a life-altering decision. Why did you choose um, to move from, from Ontario to rural New Brunswick? Well, before we moved to Niagara, we looked for an apartment in and around the Belleville, Trenton, even as far as Kingston. No way I could afford an apartment on a military pension. I mean, they're $1,800, $2,000 a month. That's basically my military pension, right? So there'd be no money for food, there'd be no money for bills, there wouldn't be anything. So we did manage to find a small apartment in Niagara that was just over $1,000 a month. So we rented that while we tried to figure out what we were going to do. Um, and I contacted a veteran friend of mine in rural New Brunswick and he said, hey, why don't you come and look around here? I'm sure you can find something. The prices are still reasonable. Uh, so we did. I did. I jumped in the car. I came to New Brunswick. I looked around. I found a spot. Um, my mortgage broker made it happen. It was, uh, it was a miracle, really. Um, so just based on my pension, we qualified for the property because I said, there's no way this is going to be taken away from me again. You know? So any, any other little job that my wife could get or I could get or something like that, it's just a bonus. Right. How did we end up? That's how we ended up in, in New Brunswick, 1,600 kilometers away from my father and my brother. Did you have any family in New Brunswick at all? or that, that I have some cousins uh, around uh, Sussex and St. John's and my one veteran friend there, not too far from us. And there's, uh, there's other veterans in uh, Fredericton, and I think there's a few in Moncton. That's going way back to my Armored Corps days, but yeah. Everybody's so far apart out here, though. It's like, I'm going to go visit, you know, my friend Rob. Oh, wow, he's 45 minutes away. <laughs> well, yes, sir. In the Maritimes, we tend to have some, some distances. Um, Terry, I know you've, you've talked to us, uh, and you gave us a glimpse into your financial situation when you went from a combined income of about $170,000 a year benefits from the federal government working for the military to roughly $35,000 a year. Right. And, and, you know, you were um, reluctantly had to remove, had to move from Ontario where your immediate family is to a place where you really have no immediate family, which is a significant distance away. Right. Um, how, how are you dealing with, and if I may ask, how are you dealing with that, you know, emotionally? How is your mental health because of all this as well? Well, <laughs> How do you deal with it day by day? I mean, what do you want me to say, right? Yeah. You do what you got to do and, and get it done. Certainly. My, my rock is over there and my wife, right? Absolutely. And, and I, I, I can appreciate that very much so. 
Um, since moving to New Brunswick, have you had uh, contact or have you seen your immediate family, your dad? When was the last time? No, not since. I mean, it takes, it takes money to drive, you know, uh, from New Brunswick to Ontario. And I have to do it in short hops. Like, I almost threw my back out just driving here today. <laughs> but I wanted to be here. And I appreciate you being this here. This is so important. It is, absolutely. Um, before, before moving to New Brunswick and, and not having, I'm sorry to have to go there again, but um, not having contact with your dad or at least you know, a physical, physical presence with him, prior to moving to New Brunswick, how often would you spend time with your father? Almost every day. Um, that was really the whole pull to move there was not only to it was one of the only places we could afford to rent um, was also to spend time you know with family do you have other family uh, oh, sorry Go ahead. trenton is about a three-hour drive so it's a six-hour round trip uh, being right there i mean i could just go knock on his door and say hey come on over you know for breakfast Right, so you went from a lot of contact to virtually, well, to actually zero contact. Zero. None. None at all. Well, other than maybe, you know, a Facebook conversation or a, right. a video conversation or a phone conversation, yeah. Right. But, but certainly not no quality time, so to speak, you know, in person like you would have before, like we'd like to do with family. Correct. Do you have any other family in Ontario that you, uh, uh, that you had to move away from as well, aside from your father? My brother, my daughter, uh, a lot of friends. Acquaintances. When was the last time you saw your daughter? Uh, last time we saw her when we left. That would have been mid-August, roughly mid-August of uh, last year. Of 2022? Yeah. So yeah. about eight, eight, seven, eight months, seven months, roughly? And if it wasn't for my brother helping us move, don't know how I would have done it. Couldn't afford movers, right? So <laughs> U-Haul wanted $6,000 for a truck. I'm like, no, I can't do that. So, um, there. After everything you know, you, you've went through. Um, I, I, I do want to know, and I think potentially the commissioners as well, is if you have to do it over, would you would you reconsider? Would you take the shot? Wouldn't would you take hesitate. The vaccine? I'd do the same thing all over again. I'd do the same thing because I had no choice. So. Because you mentioned earlier, you mentioned coercion bit, where your quote-unquote choice was take the vaccine or lose your job. Right. That you didn't see that as a valid choice. No, that's not a choice. That's no choice at all. <laughs> that's, uh, you know, that's like me telling you, hey, drink this or you lose your job. Well, what's in it? Well, I don't know. Just drink it. Well, what's it going to do to me? I don't know. Just drink it. It's safe and effective, I promise. <laughs> You'd be like, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> right? I mean, what do you want me to tell you? It's, uh, it's almost beyond coercion. It's blackmail is what it is. Let's call it what it is because that would be blackmail. Oh, and yeah. the harder you tell me to do something that I don't want to do, the more I'm going to push back. I'm that kind of guy. I'm a Taurus, so ain't going <laughs> to happen. I will push you, and to this day, People call me an anti-vaxxer. I've lost friends. I've lost people that 
just don't even want to talk to me anymore, right? I post a lot of things online, controversial things maybe. Uh, I've spent a lot of time in Facebook jail. Terry. Uh, visited my daughter there a lot too because, <laughs> you know, that's yeah. where they put you when you post things that they don't agree with. And, uh, okay, Terry, you, you, you've raised a very good uh, point and, uh, and actually that I, I'd like to ask. He said, you're not an anti-vaxxer. Now, when you join the military, do you have to take vaccinations typically when you enter the military for deployments, things of like that? So have you, have you taken any vaccines while in the military service? We'll go back to my childhood. I've had all my childhood vaccines. Uh, I did the needles parade right here in Cornwallis, Nova Scotia in 1985. They called it a parade, but it wasn't really a parade. <laughs> jab, 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 back and forth. Uh, when I, before I was deployed, I had, I couldn't even tell you what they were. They just said, you need to take this. Okay, I took it. Because I knew they're just traditional vaccines. mRNA is a messenger ribonucleic acid, I believe it's called, and somebody can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, it's not a traditional vaccine. And when I was posted to Ottawa in 2012, they noticed that all my vaccinations were expired, so they said. So you need to take them all over again. Oh, and look, you've never had the Hep A, B, C, D, E, F, G. So I took all those too, without hesitation. I will put my, I put my vaccine, my vaccine booklet up against anybody's in this room any day. So you hands down, to. hands down, I'm going to win. So no hesitation, no whatsoever hesitation. for all the prescribed vaccinations within the military, yep. up until the COVID-19 came in, and based on what 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 you what what you said to us is that there were simply, I'm going to paraphrase it, but simply there wasn't enough documentation and proof of safety for you to take a risk on, on, on an experimental vaccine, but you had no issues whatsoever taking any of the vaccinations that were required because you you know they've been proven and they've been effective if they've, and they've been around. Correct. Is that correct? Yep. Too many red flags. Thank you, Terry. I, I appreciate your time. I'm going to refer to the uh, commissioners for any questions. I'm just wondering if there was an appeal process before the imposed deadline, if there were any other options that you could have taken? Not that I'm aware of. I wasn't, I didn't allow them to put me on leave without pay. I just resigned. Okay. Um, this was in mid-September, so about two weeks roughly before um, the, or sorry, about a month and a half before the October, end October deadline. Thank you. And just to add to that, if I may, we do know people in the public service that have been placed on leave without pay. So it wasn't just something they might have done. It was done. And I personally know a lot of veterans that were released dishonorably discharged because they refused the COVID vaccines. Thank you for your testimony. I was going to ask exactly the question about, uh, in your assessment, what would be the proportion of people that um, refuse to take the jam according to the people you know around you in the military, for example? Well, was there was a number floating around of approximately 900, 8 to 900 military personnel that were dishonorably discharged. And coincidentally, some of them I know personally, and they were actually called back 
and they said, no, um, you know, you kick me to the curb, I'm not coming back. And as far as the civilians, I only know of a couple myself personally. I don't know the numbers on the civilian population. I wasn't there very long. I was there for less than a year uh, when all this happened. So. Thank you. Thank you very much for your time, Terry. I'm very grateful for you being here today. You're welcome. Thank you. Have a good day. Yes, you as well. Thank you. Just a moment, please. Uh, Mr. Peter Van Collin, if you could please come up. Uh, Peter brought the exhibits that he's going, that I've introduced electronically. Uh, he has them printed out and he will show them to you. Uh, unfortunately, I don't believe they're available uh, electronically at this time. Welcome, Peter. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Do you affirm that you will um, tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? I absolutely do. Thank you. Good morning. Hi, Chris. Can you uh, please just uh, repeat your, your full name for us? My name is Peter Van Kolart. I'm a resident of Kelvin Grove, Prince Edward Island have been there since 2019 in November and moved from Niagara, Ontario to Prince Edward Island. Um, my family and I moved because we have a business and discovered a business opportunity that was uh, going to work for us provided we weren't interfered with. 
And uh, as everybody knows, March, 20, March 11th, um, the interference came and it's changed our lives drastically. March 11th of? Uh, 20. 2020. Mm -hmm. Peter, um, you, you said you, you moved from Ontario to Prince Edward Island for, for business development opportunities? That's correct. Can you tell me more about your business, please? My wife and I run a business that is a, um, a private post-secondary institution for training the people who are the professional operators running water treatment plants and wastewater treatment facilities in this country. Our work uh, is comprised of preparing those people for their provincial examinations for recertification and initial licensing. Um, it's the only profession that I know of that requires individuals in the profession to recertify on a cyclical period of typically three years. And what exactly, uh, for to make sure everyone understands what, what that means, what exactly do, do you teach them? What is the subject matter? Yes. What's we, the importance? We provide the training in the physical, chemical, and biological sciences, hydraulics, um, the engineering, the chemistry, the biochemistry of treatment of drinking water, pub, public drinking water. Um, the conveyance of that drinking water in the distribution systems, the collection in the wastewater collection systems, and the ultimate treatment in the wastewater treatment facilities for final end disposal. And when you say for final end disposal, what does that mean? Uh, wastewater has to go back to where it came from. And how long have you been doing this? Since 1987. Since 1987. Um, and when, when, when you instruct, how does that typically take place? The instruction largely is uh, in-class, in-person instruction with uh, small numbers of students. It's somewhat boutique training, mostly hands-on because there are many skills that have to be transmitted through um, verbal uh, communication and reinforcement. I've brought some photos. Uh, that I'd like to introduce to the commission. Um, and I'll hold them up and then pass them on. Um, sure. The first photo is a photo of me with a class of students in a laboratory uh, doing this kind of work. The second photo is a photo of the students performing an analysis after the instruction. Um, this is very typical. So initially we'd have a small classroom briefing, then go into the laboratory and perform the work. And I've done this for over 33,000 students uh, in the period of time that I've been instructing in this field. Incredible. Where do your students come from all over the world, Canada, you know? We've had students from the United Nations Human Resources uh, um, branch uh, from Cyprus. We've had. I've conducted classes in Australia. I've conducted uh, training throughout Ontario. Um, the, the military bases across the country, Newfoundland, Labrador, Ontario, um, here in Nova Scotia, Alberta, Manitoba, and uh, British Columbia. You have a, clearly a breadth of experience. Uh, for the commissioner's notes, those the pictures that Mr. Uh, that Peter held up are exhibits number TR0009 as well as TR-0009A. 
Um, Peter, you then really, you made a choice to move from Ontario to Prince Edward Island for those business development opportunities. Um, how were or were you impacted, or was your and was your business impacted by the lockdowns, restrictions, or government mandates? The simple answer is yes, but I will elaborate. We discovered, or yes, we discovered a business niche that almost compelled us to consider moving to Prince Edward Island from Ontario for several reasons. Um, I'm ending, I'm getting close to the end of my career and uh, my ability to um, want to keep teaching. Um, we discovered that we really enjoyed Prince Edward Island from frequent visits in the past. Um, my wife and I discussed this, if we were going to settle down, this was a great place to do it. And um, all of the pieces worked with my insight in believing that the maritime provinces were underserved in the level of instruction that I was able to bring that I had been doing in Ontario for a number of years. I ascertained that I could travel back and forth to Ontario, still maintain the business that we had there, and develop new business here in the Maritimes, particularly with the indigenous communities of the, uh, of the North Shore of New Brunswick. And we have made inroads and it's been great. Our reception initially when we were um, advertising and, and putting out the information that we were here was, oh, thank God somebody like you is here in the Maritimes, both from the Maritime um, operators that I came in contact with and the people who run the municipalities who own and operate these kinds of facilities. Peter, what were some of your biggest challenges that you faced during those times to, uh, to keep your business going? Because you said that, you know, uh, it, it happens in person because you need to have access to a laboratory. Uh, so there's a lot of hands-on. So when, when restrictions and mandates came in, how did that impact you? And, and what, so what were those challenges that you faced? <clears throat> you have to understand civil servants, and I don't wish to disparage all of them, but I will, I will explain, having been one once uh, for the province of Ontario, uh, there is a mentality that uh, you must follow the groupthink, and whatever is uh, currently in favor is the thing that's going to be done. So there are lots of people who like to build empires and lots of people who like to um, run their own little show. That said, many of the municipalities simply followed what was a directive from their provincial governments, which was a directive from the national government, and those facilities were deemed um, closed. So there was no access to drinking water facilities, there was no access to wastewater treatment facilities. Um, the laboratories associated with them or the people who staff them. So the treatment facilities and the fresh water facilities, drinking water facilities were, were closed, uh, meaning you could not provide any instruction whatsoever. How would that impact? So oh, the impact, the impact was huge. Um, revenues essentially went from one level to zero. Because as you've mentioned, this has to be done in person, so an online type of teaching was, is not something that's Yeah, that's the, 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 the Zoom type of instruction that many people experienced during this time simply didn't work. I teach adults. Adults, uh, predictably, are kind of like herding cats when you get them into a classroom. In particular, individuals who do not 
um, sit in an office on a daily basis. They're active throughout a facility, uh, maintaining, monitoring, and operating the facilities. So many of my students, the feedback that came back was, we really don't want to play Hollywood Squares, and we'd prefer that uh, we'll wait until you can come in for live uh, interaction and training, which is exactly what we did. In, in buying the time, in buying the time, I have to stress that I had to, I had to dissolve assets, uh, so corporate assets, personal assets, um, monies we had saved for retirement, that sort of thing, um, was all used to try and keep our lives afloat. So in order to make ends meet, so to speak, uh, you, were, you had no choice but to essentially shut down your business because of these mandates and restrictions. The business essentially mm -hmm. shut down, and I refused to take um, the vaccine until the last possible moment. And unfortunately, I had to take the vaccine because I was faced with a, an economic crisis uh, that I didn't want to uh, go through. And the, the necessity for taking a vaccination, what, what was that for? Um, the, the federal government declared that uh, nobody could travel on an aircraft without um, vaccines or without the injections. And um, I had an economic benefit that was available to me in Ontario, my own province, however, uh, constrained me from traveling by car because I could not return back to the island unless I had been vaccinated. Um, for all the mandates that happened everywhere else, the, the mandates on Prince Edward Island were even more draconian because Basically, a bunker mentality was set up on the island to prevent any sort of person from coming onto the island. And if anybody was following numbers and stats, there was a period of time when everybody was glib about the fact that, you know, we were an island, we were isolated, therefore we were, we were very lucky and, you know, the angel of death had passed over us and we were not going to be uh, impacted nearly as bad as what we saw in the news and other places. How did it make you feel that, um, because it sounds as though, based on you know, what you said, you had to wait until the very last minute and then you uh, got the vaccinations before, simply for, for not simply is not, is not the right word to work, but for, not, right to, not the right word to use, but for an economic benefit. How did that make you feel? It's the, it's the uh, decision I most regret in my life. Um, my wife and I both went to go and get the first shot and I had to do it for us and for our family. She did not have to do it. And she uh, turned to me and said, I just, I just can't do it. And I said, that's fine, don't do it. Um, I, I completely understand it. She supported that I had to do it, but she did not agree that I should have it. And uh, I certainly did not uh, want to take it. I regret it, and I have done everything in my power to research the detoxification protocols that are available. And for anyone listening, natokinase is one of those things that's on the list. And I believe Dr. McCullough probably spoke about it um, uh, yesterday. Um, chaga, vitamin D3, um, vitamin C, liposomal, 
Terry. Um, so, sorry to interject, but as as we, we do have to move on, and I, I appreciate you know the seriousness sure, and, and the consequence. But um, I'm also aware that you know you have a, a other side aside from a, from an economic uh, significant economic impact on you and and and, and your family. But I also understand you have uh, something more, uh, personal impact with relation to a family member. Correct. So in staving off the inevitable injection, uh, un for me it was not until September of 2021, I believe, 2021, um, I was not able to travel to my mother who was in care in Ontario and regret my second biggest decision is regrettably I had to sign the 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 form that required her to get her vaccine in care um, I was faced with the conundrum as her um, medical power of attorney that if I did not sign it, they would eject my mother from care. This is a woman in a wheelchair who could not, could not move. And they were going to eject her from care. They were going to turn her out. And I would have to find alternate, alternative accommodation for me being in PEI, she being in Ontario. And my third, my third photo I'm going to hold up is the photo of my dear mother Adele and this this is a a great photo but that's the last time I saw her that was through a window at a healthcare facility in November of 20 when I was able to fly before vaccines were made available, under the constraints that were imposed at the time, she was on a second floor window in her room. We had an hour and a half conversation because I was fully aware that that was perhaps the last time I was going to see her for a long time. And after she had her second injection, she developed vaginal bleeding and this is a woman in her 80s who'd never had any problem with her reproductive system whatsoever she bore four children naturally and um, to develop vaginal bleeding was curious at the most and her wishes her wishes were carried out very quickly after her death and I wish the hell I had insisted on an autopsy and a particular investigation as to the cause of what really killed her. Thank you, Terry. Um, you, you, you said that your, once again, a choice, the word choice, that, that you faced was because of your, your medical authority of attorney that if you you had to sign for your mother to get vaccinated in the care facility if not she faced ejection correct the um, the health care facility or the uh, care facility was a not-for-profit care facility on Inter in Ontario and the care she had received up until that time was exemplary 
It was much better than many of the places my wife and I had sussed out. The year previous, uh, we had seen horrible places. And so we were very confident that she was in the best care possible at the time. But they, of course, went full, full mandate, full blinkers on. Um, there were no deviations from their rules and their imposed rules. They claim they came from the government. I, I know that everybody claims they come from the government, but they pile on their own little twist to them. And by the time every one of us had to deal with people who said, well, you have to wear a mask here or, or have to uh, show your pass there, uh, we all had some pretty stiff, um, uh, stiff, um, what's the word I'm looking for, encounters with um, zealots. Thank you, Terry. Um, Peter. Well, I have more questions. We are, we are running short on time, so um, I think you've already presented great testimony, so I will defer to the commissioners for any questions to follow. Thank you for your testimony. Of course, thank you for your service. I just have a few clarifying questions about your business. Thank you. Um, you mentioned that you had adult students. I'm just wondering if you can tell me who a typical student would have been in your, your business. Oh, uh, certainly. All my students are adults. Uh, none of my students are uh, directly out of college or university. They're all people who are actively employed. As a result of their employment in this industry, the water and wastewater industry, they have to seek provincial licensing in order to continue to work in the, in the business. That licensing is only valid unless they uh, recertify. The recertification usually takes place every three years. They have to show a certain number of continuing education units and contact hours in order to get that recertification. In Ontario, it's, it's quite high. It's a little less here in Atlantic Canada. But nonetheless, if they do not have it, they cease to be able to be employed. Thank you. And one other question. Um, I think I heard you say that one of the reasons uh, you hope your business became depressed in PEI was because of the closure of facilities, but that if you could travel to Ontario, you could still work. And is that was something different in Ontario from PEI at that time? No, the net, the net kept getting tighter and tighter. Every time I made a, an overture to arrange something, and I had made several things work, um, at the last minute, it was somebody within the, um, the municipality who suddenly came down with a, no, no, we can't have anybody from outside our group to infiltrate and potentially infect us, and therefore we're closed. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Uh, you alluded to the uh, protocol that had been developed and still developing for detoxification from vax injuries. Did you personally suffer any vax injuries? No vax injuries, but I, I am grateful that I have used the knowledge and skill I have to um, find the things that I needed necessary to diminish whatever potential I believe is out there um, for a vax injury. I, I do question a change in my, my overall energy level. Um, 
but I, you know, I cannot conclusively say because part of the problem of all of what has gone on in the last three years is that everything is broken, access to the medical system is broken, access to get tests and uh, confirmatory things done are broken. I happen to be a pilot and I've been a pilot since I was 17 and I can tell you that a two-year medical examination that was a normal course of events is no longer a normal course of events. It's a telephone conversation with a medical practitioner to get reassessed and being a pilot I have two major concerns that is those pilots in this country and other places who got the vaccine if they have a potential for some sort of vaccine injury I have a real concern about being in the air with those pilots and the second thing is that the pilots that didn't get the vaccine who were furloughed for whatever reason because their airlines had mandates or their mandates were imposed on them by the federal government um, those people are the ones that you definitely want to seek out and fly with and support whatever airlines they might be with and lastly um, I think there's going to be a large amount of Canadians who when it comes time to receive or transfuse blood in medically necessary conditions a, uh, a condition about whether or not you're receiving vaccine vaccine available blood or non-vaccine available blood will be an issue as well. Thank you. Sorry, I have uh, just a couple of brief questions about your mother. Thank you. How long after she got the second injection did her uh, medical condition start and how long after did she pass away? She passed away four months after the second shot. Her medical conditions uh, uh, occurred within three weeks of the, um, the first shot. Uh, secondly, did you have any discussions with the medical personnel that you thought it might be a reaction to the vaccine? I did, and you can probably understand what that reaction would have been. Oh no, you can't possibly know anything because you're not a doctor. So then I, is it safe to say that it was not registered in the CAFIS system as an adverse reaction? No, I, I believe it wasn't. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for your testimony. I just would like to ask you, refer to the PEI protocols and mandates as draconian. Could you kind of expand on that, please? Hmm. I don't think I have enough time. The, the initial response was on the island was to literally barricade the bridge and they put up a barricade. Everybody was required to go through some sort of search procedure, questioning that was, I'm going to say, literally un-Canadian. Things that you'd never expect to hear or experience in Canada. These are the same kinds of questions that I answered routinely going across the border 30 years that I lived in Niagara because I, almost, I was only 15 minutes from the Canadian-US border and quite used to answering the, the nature of those kinds of questions for border security, but I never expected to experience that in, New, in, in PEI or New Brunswick when I once came over to New Brunswick because I got myself declared essential because of the nature of the work I did. And in traveling to Sydney, Nova Scotia, 
I can tell you that I was stopped at the border between Sydney and New Brunswick by a group of angry people who had been locked down and, and by individuals wielding bats threatening to smash cars as a result of their reaction to being locked down at this point for over a year. The only reason I got through that roadblock was because I was declared an essential and I explained it to the individual wielding the bat and he acquiesced and, and allowed me to pass through. I was able to, deliver the, able to deliver the training in Sydney, Nova Scotia to the people who were waiting for me there. Sadly, I was only into that training two days before Nova Scotia locked down Nova Scotia and I was required to return back to Prince Edward Island. So that training was postponed for another period of time and I was able to go back and complete it, but almost three or four months later. Thank you very much, Peter. I really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. And uh, my fellow Canadians, thank you. We're awake. Is Amy Johnson here? Amy Johnson, do you um, affirm that you will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Yes, I do. Good morning, Amy. Good morning. So can you state your full name, where you're from, and your occupation? Sure. So my name is Amy Johnson. Um, I'm from Chester, Nova Scotia. Um, I am a dental hygienist, currently unemployed. And since when have you been unemployed? Uh, February of 2022, so just over a year. So in February 2022, at that point, how long had you worked as a dental hygienist? I was three months shy of 22 years. 22 years and how do you like being a dental hygienist? I love being a dental hygienist actually. Um, I love interacting with people, helping them, um, you know, making sure that people are taking good care of their oral health and which in turn is over their overall health. It was a great profession. Back in early 2020, were you employed as a dental hygienist at that time? Yes, I was. And who was your employer? Chester Family Dental, Dr. Natasha Zink. How long had you been at that place? Just shy of 22 years. <laughs> so, so right I out of went school. there straight out of university. Mm -hmm. Yeah, same office, same same employee, same same employer. And how would you describe your experience working there up to that point? It was great. Um, there was ten of us, all women. Um, we were a cohesive group. We uh, worked together five days a week. You know, ate lunch together, went out to lunch, went out for birthdays, you know, parties, all that stuff. I imagine being there 22 years, you would know the patients fairly well. Uh, extremely well. And, you know, that's the other thing, too. The patients became my friends as well. You know, like a lot of patients I would see every four to six months regularly. I would see, you know, between 12 to 15 patients a day for five days a week. How big is Chester, Nova Scotia? 
Um, Chester in the winter is about three, 3,000, 3,500 people. In the summer, we can go up to like 12,000 people. Okay, so people yeah. know each other pretty well. Yeah, yeah we're a pretty small-knit community. We're about halfway between Halifax and Lunenburg. Yeah. So in 2020, as you began to hear about COVID-19, were you concerned? Um, initially, yes, I was. Um, so we, dentistry doesn't fall under health care. So we, we fall more under Nova, the Nova Scotia Dental Board and, of course, for myself, the Dental Hygienist Association. So in uh, March of 2020, we were actually shut down prior to the province actually shutting down schools and, you know, the nursing homes and things like that because they were taking it very seriously. It was very unknown. Um, they were worried about transmission. Obviously, we deal with germs, people's mouths. So, you know, it was uh, pretty important to kind of figure out what was going on. And um, so, yeah, so we shut down early March and um, didn't reopen until June of 2020. So we were shut down for a few months there. So that was a dental board decision? Yes, it was. Yeah. So you would have been at home during that time? Yes, I was. And so when the vaccines became available, did you choose to take any of the vaccines? No, I did not. And why not? Um, well, when, it, when they first started talking about the vaccines, um, you know, on a positive note, you're thinking, okay, this is a good thing, but then you start doing your own research um, and you realize, you know, hmm, COVID has a 99% plus survival rate. And so something that was so rushed, the vaccine was so rushed and experimental, I was just like, you know what? I think previous gentleman that was up earlier said, you know, let's just wait, I'm gonna hold back. And that was kind of my initial reaction was like, you know what, I'll just wait, let other people, you know, take it and kind of iron out the kinks and see what's going on. And then I quickly realized this wasn't for me. And what sources did you consult in making that decision? Well, I'm a numbers person. I like statistics. So, you know, initially I would, um, you know, check like the dash, the Nova Scotia dashboard and, um, you know, the Stats Canada and even the um, World Health Organization. But the numbers just never seem to add up. Like, you know, like these people were vaccinated and, and but the numbers keep getting bigger. And, and then the biggest one, the biggest red flag for me was uh, when they put the vaccine passports in. And, um, so the exposure sites here in Nova Scotia, we have the exposure site website, you know, where, you know, this exposure site, don't go there, don't go there. And all the exposure sites are places where people that were unvaccinated couldn't go. So how are we the problem? How are the unvaccinated the problem when the exposure sites are all vaccinated people? So as quickly realize that the vaccine doesn't stop transmission. And f from my dental standpoint, the only reason why I would take the vaccine is to protect my patients, that I wouldn't want to transmit, you know, um, COVID to a patient. But if the vaccine doesn't stop transmission, what is the point of taking the vaccine if its effectiveness for severity of disease is still questionable and doesn't stop transmission? So during that time, how did you feel about the way the media was portraying COVID-19 and the vaccines? And Well, it was, it's actually very disheartening. It makes you question everything that the media said over the last, you know, years. Um, very biased, very fear-mongering, you know. Again, I, was wor I worked from June of 2020 until February of 2022 through this whole pandemic, um, seeing 10, 15 patients a day, and majority of them are scared to death. And it's, that's really sad that they're scared of something that, you know, does have a 99% survival rate. And we don't know much about the vaccine and they're putting so much faith in the vaccine. 
So when you made that decision not to take the vaccine, did you share that with your coworkers? Absolutely. You know, um, at lunchtime or just in random conversations. And uh, my coworkers weren't so receptive of that. <laughs> Can you describe a bit more in detail just how this decision sure, well, impacted you? At, at the start, when I, you know, when the vaccine started coming out, um, I would say, you know, I think you guys should hold off, you know, wait. And because, again, dentistry doesn't fall under healthcare, but because we're um, such high exposure, we did, we, we were given the opportunity to get the vaccines quite early on with the nurses and, and the doctors. Um, so nine out of 10 of us um, were right there, the first ones in line getting the vaccine. And people were trying, you know, my coworkers were like, you should do it, you should do it. And, but then that quickly turned to, um, instead of just you know saying you should do it, you should do it uh, to anger and you know animosity um, alienation you know I would go to work just to work and there was no more going out to lunch with my coworkers or talking to them on the weekend or yeah why do you think that they reacted that way what do you think why were they telling you to get the vaccine and why were they upset well they felt that I was not only putting my patients in danger but also them by and being irresponsible um, just because I'm unvaccinated doesn't mean that I don't take my job seriously or I don't care about my patients but that's how they were perceiving it as that I was being selfish and only thinking about myself and you said you're no longer employed. So no. were there mandates for the for your So the, um, um, the, because I fall under the dental board and the Nova Scotia Dental Hygienist Associations, both the board and the association did not mandate vaccines. Um, both, of course, were, you know, uh, recommending vaccines, but we were not legislated to get, to get a max vaccine because it didn't stop transmission. So their official statement was, the vaccine doesn't stop transmission, so there's no benefit for the patient. Um, I'm sure all of you have gone to the dentist, so um, you know that we use universal precautions pre-COVID, and then those universal precautions were only amped up even further. We had to wear gowns, we had to double masks, face shields, goggles, you know, um, gloves. Um, there was new protocols on scrubs. We couldn't, um, we, we would have to change them even if we left the office for, even for a minute. Like it was ex very extreme, um, but no vaccine mandate. So then uh, at Christmas, December of 2021, my employer came to me and she officially said, you need to get vaccinated. And I said, no. Um, and I said, let's have this discussion about the vaccine. And she said, I'm not discussing it. You don't follow the science. And I said, Okay, so then when we came back after Christmas, because we closed for three weeks over Christmas, um, one of my coworkers uh, got sick and tested positive for COVID. And she was triple vaxxed and was extremely sick for three weeks, very, very ill. But one of the protocols that we did have was that to come back to work, all of the employees had to be uh, negative PCR tests to come back to work before the office reopened after the, um, my coworker had COVID. So reluctantly, I went to go get my PCR test and it came back positive. I was totally asymptomatic. I never got sick. And um, so when I called my employer, Dr. Natasha Zink, um, to tell her, she was not happy, obviously. Um, but because I was unvaccinated, I had to wait the full 14 days quarantine, even though I was asymptomatic. And at that time, it, the protocol was only down to a week but because I was unvaccinated I had to have the full two weeks off and um, so I was set to go back to work on a Monday and a couple days later 
before I was getting back to getting ready to go back to work, she called me and she fired me. And she said that I was putting my patients at risk and that because I wouldn't get vaccinated, I was no longer to work there. So you were immediately terminated? No. I never went back to work after testing positive for COVID. And did she, did she fire you with cause or did she pay you? Um, well, she said that first I was putting my patients in danger. And secondly, she said there would be a shortage of work because um, patients wouldn't see me because I was unvaccinated. Which, yeah. And it's, and it's the hypocrisy of the whole thing is that my coworker who had COVID was extremely ill for three weeks, was triple vaccinated, still has a job, but I'm unvaccinated and, and tested positive for COVID, but was completely asymptomatic and I don't have a job so after you're, 22 years. Yeah. So your income ceased immediately? I, yes. I was given, uh, she did pay me some sick leave for those first few days when, I w when we were waiting for the test results for the PCR test, and I did get my two weeks, or three weeks of vacation pay. How did it feel to be let go from that position? Um, it was devastating. Um, like I said, uh, I worked, you don't work somewhere for 22 years and not love it, right? And um, it wasn't a job, it was a career, it was my identity. So it was really, really hard, really, really hard. I, and not to mention financially hard. You know, I made almost $80,000 a year and that's a lot of money to lose in a, in a household. And to put a lot of pressure on my husband to, you know, make sure that he, you know, could pull up his socks and, and help more as well. So. so since then, have you sought employment elsewhere? Yes, I have. Um, so like I said earlier, I do live in a small community. There is uh, two other dental offices within about 15 minutes of us. So one of the offices, one of the hygienists was retiring and I, you know, from a friend um, had heard that. So I reached out to, um, it's called Chester uh, Dental Clinic, Dr. Andrea, um, and I reached out via email and, you know, asking her if she would be interested in me possibly working there. And um, she did reply with a lovely email. I actually brought it today. But um, when I applied for the job, I never mentioned my vaccine status because it's not really anyone's business. But um, And so then when she replied back to me, she had already knew my vaccine status and would not hire me. And I have the email, would not hire me solely based on the fact that I wasn't vaccinated. So that was one. Would you um, like to read the email or share? Yeah, sure, I can. It, it, it is. Um, she says, thank you for reaching out to me regarding our soon-to-be vacant dental hygienist position. I do apologize for my late response because it did take her a few days. Um, at this point, I am unable to offer you a position with us. Professionally, I have to consider the reality of alienating patients and staff because of your vaccination status which I had never told her. So I find that very interesting. Um, unfortunately, Nova Scotia seems to stand alone as the world moves on. Personally, I could not disagree more with the public health protocols, having sat on the return to work committee for COVID-19 on behalf of the NSDA. I'm absolutely appalled at what has transpired in our once free profession. We are beholden to ridiculous public health directives. The hypocrisy of mandating vaccines and masking in dental office defies logic, common sense, and science. It did at the onset and is most certainly does not presently. I admire you for your courage and your stance against personal freedoms and standing up against tyranny. I am sorry for this, that it cannot work out for us at this time. Wishing you all the best, Dr. Andrea. 
So she was supportive of so your decision. Supportive of me, but wouldn't employ me. Right. So. And again, there were no mandates. She wasn't required. No, she, and again, these are um, Dr. Zink when she fired me, and Dr. Andrea as well. These are their sole um, ideas or opinions because the dental board does not regulate vaccinations. And did you try? Uh, so the third dental office in my area is um, Mahone Bay Dental. Um, so in November of 2022, that just went by. Um, they had a vacancy come up, so I, uh, I went in for the interview, and three days later, I was offered the job um, via email, and um, she sent me the contract. We worked out all the details. I was set to start December, um, I think it was the 17th, and on December 10th, she called me because she heard through the grapevine that I was unvaccinated because during the interview, it was not discussed, during um, the contract that she had given me and sent to me via email, not discussed. Um, but she had heard that I was unvaccinated, wanted to confirm that. And of course, I'm not going to lie about my status. I'm not ashamed of it nor embarrassed, um, although it is not anyone's, um, you know, it's not their business. But um, so she said, if it's true, and I said, yes, it is. And uh, she said, well, I'll still offer you the job, but um, we'll be, I'll put you in a three-month probationary period. And if patients will continue to see you knowing of your vaccine status and it all works out, then I will um, offer you a full-time job. And I said, no, thank you. So, and I walked away. And why did you say no, thank you? Um, well, first of all, I, again, it's not anyone's business what my vaccine status is. Um, second of all, I don't, I didn't want to be put through that torture again. And not knowing that, ever, like I said, I see 10 to 15 patients a day, not knowing is this the patient that's going to go to, her name is Dr. Fahar, um, go to Dr. Um, Sarah and say, hey, I don't want to see her anymore because she's unvaccinated. Um, yeah. And, and uh, so, yeah, I was really reluctant to do that. So I said no. And I declined. So you've worked as a dental hygienist for 22 years. Yeah. How long have you been in Chester? 22 years. 22 years. And yeah, well, actually, I grew up in Chester, but um, moved away for a few years, and then after, when I got my job, okay. 20 years ago. And is there anywhere else in Chester you could work as a dental hygienist? No, those are the only dentist offices within a half an hour. So, yeah, I'd have to start traveling. And again, I was spoiled rotten for 22 years. I walked to work. <laughs> so outside the workplace, did the vaccine passports have much of an impact on your life? Absolutely. You know, um, I, besides the obvious of, you know, not being able to go to the gym or the movies or restaurants and things like that. Um, but more importantly, in, in my house, we, uh, over that, that period, we missed two family funerals and two weddings. Yeah. And can you give a few more details about that? Or? Sure. Well, uh, one of the funerals uh, was uh, my husband's uncle, who is like a father to him, who's very special to us. Um, Coincidentally, he did pass away within a week of his second shot. Um, but we were unable to go to uh, the church service. They asked my husband to be a pallbearer, but when they found out that he was unvaccinated and we were unable to go to the church service, obviously he couldn't do that. Um, they did have a graveside service, so we were able to go to the graveside service uh, because it's outside. And this was um, actually last February. Um, February of 2022. And uh, so we did go to the Grayside service, but we offended family members by going. 
by being present. Um, we, you know, it, it has created a huge rift in our family. Um, there are family members that don't speak to us any longer over us going to the funeral. So they were upset that you went to the outdoor service. Yeah. Yeah. Again, you know, the misconception that just because we're unvaccinated, we're, we're spreading this horrible disease to everyone, right? And it's really sad. And, you know, if you look at the numbers, people that are vaccinated are the ones getting COVID currently. And, um, and I go back to my own experience at my work office. You know, it's okay for a triple vax person to get COVID, but it's not okay for me to get COVID or even be around people. So would you say that the measures impacted relationships in your life? Absolutely, it did, yeah. Yeah, unfortunately. Do you have children, Amy? I do. Um, I have two children. They're both grown. Um, and this has, in fact, affected them as well, very much so. Um, my daughter, in September of 2021, uh, started her first year of university at Dalhousie. She was accepted into the Bachelor of Science program, the Exhilarator program. And within weeks of her starting, they mandated that all nursing students had to be double vaccinated. So she chose not to get vaccinated. So she left the nursing program and switched to a Bachelor of Science. And uh, her hopes were then to, to be a natural path. And shortly thereafter, the Dalhousie uh, decided that all students had to be double vaccinated. So we were kind of in a bit of a dilemma there, but then they transitioned to online learning. So she was able to do all her courses online. So we were happy with that. But then um, she started receiving letters that um, coercing her or threatening her to get double vaccinated or she wouldn't be able to complete her year at school. And uh, turns out they, they came true. And she ended up, we lost all of her tuition money and she wasn't able to get the credits. So they, they just told her to leave. Uh, yeah. yeah, she uh, yeah, yeah. She wasn't able to um, go to in person to Dalhousie to write her exams. So she did the courses all year long online, and uh, then when um, at the end of the, the term, when she came to do the exams, they wouldn't make special accommodation for her because she was not able to be on the premises without being double vaccinated. Would that affect her transcripts? Yes, it, that ended up. Um, she, she did get uh, fails, like Fs, but they, but they said that if you come back and take that same course again, they would replace the, the failure. So yeah, and so my son um, and my husband, they own a construction company called Noss and Son Construction, and um, they were also, it was the fall of 2021, they were doing a project on an Airbnb um, owned by Colin and Carol McDonald in Chester. And um, they, it was a large project. They were intend to be there probably about five months. They were about halfway through, and it was right before Christmas of 2021. And the manager of the property, his name is Victor Lovett, he uh, heard, apparently through the grapevine, that, that my husband and son were unvaccinated. And he arrived on the job site, livid, irate, kicked them off the job site, told them to take their tools and that they were fired. Like, so, you know, it's very difficult um, living in a small community because everyone knows everything and the deformation of character as well that people talk behind, you know, and my husband and son being self-employed, you know, we worry about their business. Uh, Jacqueline, my daughter, has now since opened up her own business, Coastal Charcuterie, doing charcuterie boards. 
and you know she's doing really well and really successful but you know you wonder at what point sometime that might come back again and Amy, I just have one final question. Sure. Do you regret your decision? No, not at all. My health is far more important than any money. Or, um, and, and again, I, I'm at the age that I'm, I'm approaching 50. Um, so I was in a position that I was able to stick to my guns and my, my morals and, and make a choice for myself and my health and my family. But I feel horrible for people that are younger or even older that have to feel the pressure to to cave to that coercion. And, you know, and I'm not going to say that maybe when I was, you know, in my late 20s, or early 30s and had two small kids and great big mortgage and car payments that I might have caved as well. And I was just really fortunate that I was in a position that I was able to, you know, continue to to um, stick to my moral standards. Thank you. And I'll turn it over to the commissioners if you have any questions. Well, thank you very much for your testimony. I have a question about the um, your clinical, uh, the um, the dentist. Were they asking for a patient to be treated that they show vaccination? No. So um, that at the dental office, you don't, you didn't have to be vaccinated to come because again, dentistry kind of falls under that healthcare, but it doesn't. Um, so we would, did not ask people their vaccination status, and all people were treated equal. Okay, thank you. You're good. Thank you, Amy. Thank you. Next, we have Kathy Howland. We'll swear her in. Good morning. Do you affirm that you will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Yes, I do. Good morning, Kathy. Good morning. Can you please tell us your full name, where you're from, and your occupation? My name is Kathy Howland. I live in the Ductic, New Brunswick, and I'm an education assistant. And how long have you been an education assistant? Uh, since 2018. So approximately five years, four or five years? Yes. And what does an education assistant do? Uh, I uh, focus on primarily special education students students with Down syndrome, uh, autism, uh, learning, uh, different learning abilities, uh, ADHD students. And you help them with sort of whatever work they're doing in the classroom? <coughs> Sorry, and you help them with the, the school work that they're doing in the classroom, is that it? Yes. Yeah. And can you tell us a bit about your current position? I've been in my current position for the past two years. Uh, I'm working currently with uh, children that have not had a diagnosis, but they are 
not quite sure on the spectrum of autism, and uh, I have also had the past couple of years a Down syndrome student. So you were working in this position when you became eligible to take one of the COVID-19 vaccines? Yes. And did you take one of the vaccines? I did. Which one? I took the Pfizer vaccine. Do you have the batch number by any chance? I do. Uh, it is FF5109. And when did you take the first uh, vaccine? I took the first one on um, November 3rd, 2021. November 3rd? Yes. And why did you choose to take the vaccine? Uh, it really wasn't a choice. Uh, I work for the province of New Brunswick and they mandated that if we were going to continue our position, uh, as if I was to continue my, in my position as an education assistant, that I would have to have the COVID shots. Did you speak with your doctor prior to taking the vaccine? Yes, I did. And can you speak a bit about that conversation? Uh, I called her and actually asked her if uh, she could give me a letter pausing uh, the process. I, At that time, I wanted to wait until the uh, Novavax vaccine had been approved and uh, I had read several articles that said that was going to happen. Uh, and so her response to me was, uh, no, we can't, I can't give you uh, an exemption for the vaccine. I, and I tried to explain to her that I didn't want an exemption. The Novavax vaccine was non-mRNA. And so I just wanted to hold off until that became approved and see where that went. And her response was, listen, there won't be any problem with that. With the Pfizer shot, just go get the damn shot. And how long has she been your family doctor? She has been my doctor for uh, probably 10 plus years. Did you find that interaction or that um, behavior or treatment sort of distinct from the way you had interacted with her in the past? It was awful. Like, I was so shocked that I, my only response that I had to her after that little outburst was, okay then, um, I guess that's where we'll leave it. So she seemed upset that you were you were trying to delay taking uh, the vaccine that was available for waiting to wait for another one. Yes, yeah, she was not open to that at all. So you went and got the shots. Do you recall who administered the vaccine to you? Yeah, it was a pharmacist at the Guardian Drugstore in Winston. And did the pharmacist advise you of the potential side effects of the vaccine? No. Did they I asked her if she had heard about any side effects, and she said, well, there's just a sore arm and maybe a fever, but nothing really serious. Standard side effects. With, and did, did she give you an individual assessment um, based on your sort of personal medical history to see if the vaccine was right for you? No. So after you took the first shot, did you experience any symptoms? Uh, not really with the first shot, uh, just a bit of a sore arm. It was 
the second shot. And when did you take your second shot? I took my second shot on December 1st, 2021. Okay, so about a, almost a month later? Yes. Did you experience symptoms after your second shot? Yes. Uh, I took the, the second one on December 1st. December 3rd, when I get up to get ready for work that morning, my ears were plugged full. Uh, my left ear was painting quite severely, and I had this awful ringing in my ears. It was so loud. And so I had to miss work that day. The following day, Saturday, December 4th, I ended up going to the emergency because of my symptoms. So you spoke with a healthcare practitioner about the symptoms? Yes. And did they find anything? No. He did a, looked in my ears and he said, I can't see really any infection or anything. So he gave me ear drops and a nasal spray and sent me on my way. And did your symptoms persist? Yes. And did you eventually get any further testing done to assess sort of what was wrong with your ears? Uh, I did. I talked to my family doctor and she stopped the ear drops and the nasal spray because when your ears are already full, you, she, she didn't think that it was appropriate to add more to that. So, and then she referred me to an ENT. Okay, and did you also get an audiology report? I did. Okay, and did you give me a copy of this audiology report? I do. Do you happen to have it in front of you? I do. Okay, so this is exhibit TR-0005A. Uh, yes. Perfect. Okay, and do you mind if I read from it uh, a bit of the, the finding here? Not at all. Sure. So it says hearing sensitivity, left ear, mild to moderately severe sensorineural hearing loss, and right ear, mild to moderate sensorineural hearing loss. So right. stronger hearing loss in your left ear, but hearing loss in both. Right. So had you had an audiogram done in the past that they were able to compare this to, I assume? I did. Yeah, okay. So they found uh, that you'd had some significant hearing loss in both ears. And then it also adds ENT consult. Did you end up seeing an ENT then you had said? I did see an ENT. And do you have a copy of your ENT report in front of you? I do. So your audiology report was January 14th, 2022. And then February 16th, 2022, you have your ENT report from River Valley ENT. Is that correct? Right. Okay, and that's exhibit TR-0005. And do you mind if I read from that report as well, if you exhibit or excerpts, right? Not at all. Great. So the ENT uh, wrote, I saw Catherine today in my otology clinic. She has an interesting history. She had her second dose of her Pfizer COVID vaccine December 1st, 2021. Within 24 to 48 hours, she started noticing fullness, pressure, and discomfort in both ears, worsening tinnitus, and subjective hearing loss. Um, speaks about your audiogram, acknowledges the the hearing loss, and that there are no um, nothing else, no history or nothing to explain it. And then he adds, in summary, this is a patient with bilateral sensorineural hearing loss with left asymmetric sensorineural hearing loss, and adds, this may represent a vaccine side effect. 
Is that correct? That's correct. So you have tinnitus and hearing loss in both ears? Yes. And did you and your ENT discuss it, the relationship, the potential relationship with the, your COVID-19 vaccine? Uh, yes, we did. And he said it was quite possible that because uh, he is prevented to, by coming right out and saying uh, that uh, the, the government has, has stopped the doctors apparently from, uh, from what I've been able to learn has prevented the doctors from actually attributing vaccine injuries to uh, the COVID-19 shots. So he expressed that concern that he was not uh, permitted to directly attribute it as a cause? Yes. Okay. And so he just, he put it in the report though, just as a potential effect. Yes. And have you spoken with your family doctor again regarding your diagnosis? You said, you mentioned you had, did she sort of accept that there could be a link with the vaccine? Uh, yes, she did. She said that she had read some, some uh, articles that did say that people were having problems with the vaccine and uh, that their symptoms were hearing loss and tinnitus. But she, again, would not put that down on paper for so the doctor who told you to go get the shot and not to wait for the for the another shot that you had been waiting for um, was now acknowledging that you could have developed tinnitus and hearing loss based on t having taken it. Right. Okay, so Kathy, can you speak a bit to what it's been like living with tinnitus and hearing loss? This was this report was approximately approximately a year after your second shot, a little bit more. Um, so how has that been? How has it impacted your life? It's been it's been difficult. It's I've always been uh, a social butterfly, an extrovert, and I had completely flipped because it is so hard to be in crowds or uh, around a group of people because I don't I don't hear well. Background noise is particularly annoying. So you can imagine being in my job with uh, with. A classroom of children, especially elementary kids, uh, they're very boisterous and, and can be loud. And so I've withdrawn a lot and I've struggled with depression because I do miss those gatherings. Um, I did direct a group of 30 vocalists and uh, uh, with a live band, and I can no longer do that because I can't stand. It's just too hard to be in a room with um, a lot of music, it's overwhelming. And my ears close up even more and the tinnitus rings even louder. Uh, as far as my family goes, they don't believe that I would actually have been uh, hurt by a vaccine. So that's another hurdle that's been difficult. So you used to be quite involved in music. You said you directed a group of music and now it's too painful for you to be sort of surrounded by that many people and that level of noise. Is that correct? Yeah, I can't. I just have a hard job with it now at this point. And, and how has it affected your relationships? You said family members uh, are doubtful or skeptical. Uh, yeah, my family, my parents uh, are very skeptical. My sister, uh, 
is very skeptical. In fact, uh, they're just like, well, I mean, you're getting older, you're going to lose your hearing anyway. And I'm like, um, not necessarily. I was fine. And they just don't want to believe that it was part of the vaccine because they've all had several shots. And so do you feel that you can speak comfortably about this issue in social circles or in certain groups? I can't talk about it, no. Um, people are, they shut down if I say anything. Like, I'm sorry, I can't hear you. I had a vaccine injury and I'm, I'm not gonna hide behind that. I'm not gonna stop with, I'm sorry, I can't hear you. Uh, I want to tell people that this is what this vaccine has done to me and thousands of other people. And has this experience impacted your mental health at all? Yes, I have become very isolated uh, by times. I forced myself to be out in a group of people uh, because I know what's going to happen. The tinnitus is going to get louder. My ears are going to get stuffier. And, uh, but I don't want to become isolated altogether because that's not healthy either. And what would you say has been the hardest aspect of this experience? I think uh, part of it is uh, my parents not believing that I could could possibly be injured by these COVID shots because they have so much faith in the government and in the shots. And uh, then another thing is my job. I love my job. I love my kids that I work with. And uh, it's so hard to hear their voices and I work mostly with literacy uh, trying to get work with the kids to bring up their literacy skills so they can do math easier science anything uh, is based on literacy and so we will want them to be right top drawer but if I can't hear whether they're saying a D a B or a V or a T like uh, it's just crushing um, to lose that that ability to know what those kids are doing and be able to help them. I just don't feel I can do my job as well as I did before. Thank you very much, Kathy. I have no further questions, but the commission might. I'll just give them a minute. Thank you for your testimony. I have a couple of questions, and perhaps you said them and I missed them. And that was, I understood that you had your second audio test in and around January 4th of 2022? Uh, second audio test. Uh, I'm just looking for the date here on that. It was the 14th of January, 2022. Oh, okay, I can't read my own notes. There is a one there. Now, my real question, though, is when, what was the date of the first test, the record test you had prior to that? Uh, it was back, I do believe that uh, there's a previous audiogram on file from 2002, okay. which showed normal hearing. Um, one last question. Um, I, I believe you said that you had a discussion with your family doctor um, with regard to this being a potential vaccine injury. 
and uh, I believe I heard you say she thought that was a possible side effect. Right. She had been reading some literature online that was starting, that things were starting to come out that it was a potential side effect. Um, do you know whether or not she made a, uh, a report uh, um, on the, to the CAFIS system on that? That I don't know. I've got some paperwork to go into her next week, but I I really don't know if she reported that to bears or not. Okay. Great. Thank you very much. Nero. Thank you, Kathy. Nero. So we're going to break for 15 minutes and uh, come back after the break. Thanks. Allison Petten, thank you for attending. Do you affirm you will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Yes, I do. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning, Ms. Petten. So a little bit of background, Ms. Patton was a last-minute substitution witness, and so for that reason, we are not going to go through direct examination. Um, Ms. Patton has a story here to tell, and it's an important story. Uh, Ms. Patton is going to be speaking on four different topics, informed consent, appropriate techniques for intramuscular injections, collection of data, and nursing standards and ethics. So. Um, I'm going to uh, let you have the floor. Okay. Thank you very much. I uh, really appreciate the opportunity to be here today. Um, I'm here partly because, um, well, because I love nursing. And I get a little emotional about this, but I'll calm down once I get going. <laughs> um, many of my colleagues can't be here, and either because they're afraid to speak publicly or because they're exhausted, or they're at work, or maybe they're getting a break. Um, I have had the privilege of working in all four streams of nursing. I've uh, been a clinical nurse most of my career, and an educator, an administrator, and I've also had some involvement with research projects and program evaluation. I currently work as an educator and health consultant, and I've been a registered nurse for 40 years and a really good one. Um, I love what I do and I love teaching all around Nova Scotia. Um, I try to be kind and helpful and non-judgmental and I think because of that people tell me stuff. <laughs> a lot of people know me in healthcare and I've been hearing a lot of uh, very uh, disturbing stories over the last few years. Um, I'm here because we made some serious mistakes and we need to do better and I know that we can. I'm not interested in furthering the blame and shame that has gone on. 
Um, I think it's important that we reflect and examine and evaluate what's been done so that we can figure out how to do things better and not just see who's at fault. I'm not usually a rebel. I can be a little, but not overly. I actually kind of like rules. We need policies and protocols and guidelines and laws to guide us and support us, but we need to follow them. And they also need to make sense. So as I talk about these four things, informed consent, intramuscular injections, collecting data about possible adverse effects, and nursing and our code of ethics, I'd like to spend a little more time on nursing and the code of ethics, but I'll try to be brief as I go along, and I invite you to help me with my time because I know. I will. Uh, yeah. And if I talk too fast, you could slow me down. Okay. Um, with informed consent, I guess <clears throat> I would like to convey that with 40 years in nursing, I'm blown away. <laughs> um, to me, informed consent, I thought, was a basic foundational secure piece of the healthcare system that we weren't allowed to mess with. For 40 years, I'm not allowed to touch people hardly. I'm not allowed to put something on someone's body or in somebody's body without them understanding it and choosing to accept it unless the person doesn't have capacity to do so, and then there's a process we go through with that. Um, information is required. Um, when you look at the definition of informed consent, coercion is not allowed. Uh, people are not allowed to be punished for the choices that they make with health care. Um, there's not supposed to be negative repercussions for their choices. Um, with regard to mandates, quite honestly, I never dreamed that we would do that. And especially with the high vaccination rate that we had, with all that blame and shame and, and encouraging people to get vaccinated, we had a very high vaccination rate. So I'm not actually sure why they were mandated at all, really. Um, people wanted them. Uh, before we, um, um, you know, heard messages about unvaccinated people being racist or misogynist or having unacceptable views. Um, people want drugs. Look at the TV ads. Um, you know, there's, there's new drugs out there to help you with your COPD, your, your breathing problems. And in order to, you know, decide you're going to have them, you're being told that you might have headaches or high blood pressure or a heart attack or sudden death. But people have the information and they can make those choices and, it, and they sell the drugs. It's, it happens. Um, we had nurses giving vaccinations to nurses who were crying because the nurses knew enough to know that we didn't know enough about these vaccines. You couldn't get an exemption for loving or money in this province. I only know of one individual who got an exemption, and that was after their first vaccination, after they regained consciousness several days later. Um, we know there are a lot of people uh, for whom this vaccine was not a good idea. The chemically sensitive, the neurologically vulnerable, and many others, but I, I probably shouldn't spend much time on that because other people are. <laughs> um, we, we heard um, doctors telling their patients, I don't think this vaccine is a good idea for you, but I'm not allowed to give you an exemption. Doctors were prevented from practicing medicine and providing appropriate care for individuals according to their individual situation. Yesterday, 
I learned that 114 Nova Scotians died from COVID, I think in the first two years. I'm not positive, but I'm pretty sure that I could find you 114 people who either died or aren't sure how they're going to live because of vaccine injuries. Some of those people chose, but some of those people didn't feel they had a choice. So it wasn't informed consent in that case. And I think it's interesting and very sad to see that we are noting now we have more COVID deaths after people have had two or more vaccines. So not my area of expertise, but it does seem like maybe they aren't working. So that's informed consent. I'd like to talk about the appropriate technique for intramuscular injections. I teach this stuff and I teach to aspirate. So um, shall I just explain briefly what yes, that means? Please. So normally um, when we're giving somebody an intramuscular injection, so if we're using the deltoid, we have to make sure there's enough muscle there <laughs> that we can actually um, you know, get into a muscle, we're not going to hit bone. Um, and so we bunch up, we landmark to find bone and, and the right place to, to inject. And then when we quickly inject the needle, um, we hold it steady and we pull the plunger back just a little bit, create a little negative pressure to see if a little blood comes back into the syringe. If blood comes in the syringe, that means I'm not in muscle, I'm in a blood vessel. So I have to remove, pull the needle out, put pressure there so they don't get a bruise and whatnot, throw that out, and then I have to draw up and landmark and inject in a different site. Because if I go ahead and give that injection, I will be giving it intravenously. And if I give a, a medication intravenously, usually it's with a lower dosage. Um, so the way these vaccines were developed and the research that was done around them was around them being given IM. So um, I was quite taken aback uh, mm -hmm. to see that um, um, in Nova Scotia and across Canada, and I understand from the, the CDC, because I you know, did some research to see what I could find out was happening now, they're saying it's not necessary for vaccines. What's, uh, what's to, not necessary? It's not necessary to aspirate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, when uh, not necessary for vaccines. Mm -hmm. um, and I found this out a handful of years ago because, as I said, I teach this and I want to make sure that I'm staying current and whatnot. And um, what I found out was um, there's no research around that. Um, the, the wording is there's no evidence to support that aspiration is necessary, <laughs> but there's also no evidence to support that it's not. Um, and if I don't aspirate and I inadvertently give a medication into a vein, I could cause an overdose because we have a different dose. So for example, with morphine, if I'm giving it IM, I might give five to 10 milligrams. If I'm giving it IV, I give maybe a half to two milligrams. Mm -hmm. so, um, so it is important um, that we aspirate. Um, maybe they're not concerned about overdosing, with a vaccine, but it wasn't intended to go directly into the bloodstream. It was supposed to uh, get there gradually from the muscle. And the only reason I can really think of uh, for them wanting to do that, um, that would be a good reason, uh, would be because of wiggly children. Um, most of the vaccines that we give go into young children and no long, young child wants to have a sharp piece of metal in their body for very long, so, and they're wiggly. So um, maybe that's why, but I, I, I didn't find any rationale documented anywhere 
for that. Um, it only takes a few extra seconds to aspirate. What takes longer is if you are in a vein, then you have to throw that away and drop a new one. So you have a little bit of wastage and a little bit more time. But it, that's, that's important. I'm going to give you the 10-minute um, warning. Thank you. Uh, my son wanted me to tell you that he was taught in paramedic school to aspirate. And then suddenly when they rolled out the vaccines, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. So he is rightly disgusted because it does matter. With collecting data about possible adverse effects, a lot of people are talking about that in a variety of ways. So I think I will just tell you what I thought and what I expected and it didn't happen. Um, I first thought, uh-oh, that was fast. This is new technology. Um, these vaccines are so new and different they had to change the definition of vaccine in order for them to meet that um, definition. But I thought, oh my, we're in a pandemic. We have to do things differently. I suppose we'll have to do this as long as we are collect, and there was no talk of mandate at that point. <laughs> and I thought, as long as we are collecting data about possible adverse effects and we're ready to pull the plug, I guess we have to do this. And I honestly, um, I, I've known for years that we're not good at reporting adverse effects for, for drugs and whatnot. I think it gets reported maybe about as much as sexual assault, like 10% or less of adverse effects for drugs and vaccines actually gets reported. And this is after 40 years of nursing, I know this. Um, I expected that we were gonna do this amazing rollout of how to use the adverse ev event following immunization forms. I thought they'd be on telephone poles almost. I figured every health professional in Nova Scotia, because we all are regulated, we have you know, uh, someone that can send us an email, I figured every nurse was going to get a copy of that form and be told how to use it. I figured they were going to revise the form and make it more user friendly, make the process easier. I figured they're probably going to get the public to complete their own because busy health professionals could be doing something else. So um, none of that happened. And um, the way that it's supposed to work is we don't analyze what we submit. If there's an adverse event that happens following immunization, it's not supposed to be analyzed first. It's supposed to be submitted. When and you then, say analyzed, you mean for the causal connection to the vaccine? Yes. You just report it regardless. We report it if it's following. following. Yeah. yeah. And if it's a very serious one, then they're supposed to investigate. That's my understanding. It's supposed to be investigated right away if it's serious. And... Um, if it's not serious, then they just put it in the data, and if a pattern emerges, then they investigate. But if you don't collect the data, you don't get to see the pattern. And I think that's what happens. Yeah. Um, so I'd like to talk a little bit about my profession. And I might cry, but I'll get over it, so just bear with me. Um, I live in, sorry. <laughs> I live and breathe my standards of practice and my code of ethics. Nursing is hard, but I love it. It's important work and I've been proud to do it. Nurses are supposed to be critical thinkers. We're supposed to have awesome knowledge, skill, and judgment. We're not allowed to just follow orders. Leadership is expected and required of us. It says so in our standards of practice, which are legislated documents and our code of ethics. So legislated to me, I understand that means it's law. This is what we're supposed to do. 
We're supposed to also work within our scope of practice, which means as a registered nurse, I'm only allowed to do what I have, the knowledge, skill, ability, and judgment to safely, ethically, compassionately do for an individual or, or group. Um, yes, most people are, are familiar with nurses caring for sick people and people who are injured and people who are dying, but we also are required to do health promotion and, and disease prevention as well. I expected public health education to not be just stay home and wait for your vaccine and wear a mask when you go out and have distance. I expected we would also encourage people to support their immune system, to let people know the best way to fight off a virus is to have a healthy immune system. Uh, fear does not make your immune system stronger. It makes it weaker. Um, we could have done things like promoted better nutrition, hydration, stress management, mindfulness, fresh air, connecting with people. Um, we could have had people, uh, could have been checking vitamin D3 for people to see if they needed more vitamin D to be optimized. Um, so there are a lot of things we could do. Helping people to like avoid sugar and alcohol, just letting them know, you know, make other choices when you can. But instead, we were vaccine waiting. <laughs> um, so I want you to know that the Code of Ethics for Registered Nurses in Nova Scotia, I'm going to quote from it, two things. It says, in anticipation of the need for nursing care in a disaster or disease outbreak, nurses assist in developing a fair way to settle conflicts or disputes regarding work exemptions or exemptions from the prophylaxis or vaccination of healthcare providers. That's for every registered nurse in Canada. This code of ethics also says, and I quote, when in the midst of a disaster or disease outbreak, sorry, nurses advocate for the least restrictive measures possible when a person's individual rights must be restricted. <clears throat> we didn't do that. Um, and I've given um, you a copy of the code of ethics. I for do. Your yeah, I do have a copy of that. Thank you. We can um, enter that. The Nova Scotia College of Nursing is the regulatory body for all nurses in Nova Scotia. And I'm going to quote once again and read, if you bear with me. In Nova Scotia, all registered nurses and nurse practitioners are accountable to practice nursing based on that code of ethics um, provided, developed by the Canadian Nurses Association. The code of ethics is a resource to help you practice ethically and work through ethical challenges that arise in your practice setting with individuals, clients, families, communities, and the health system. That didn't happen either. Mm -hmm. In August 2021, I sent an email to, uh, I heard that there was talk of maybe mandating uh, vaccines. So um, in August 2021, I sent an email to my nursing regulator because my understanding is that they exist for the purpose of protecting the public from nurses. Um, I sent them an email basically saying public health needs our help. I'm concerned that they might mandate and these vaccines have not had long-term studies, we don't have enough information, blah, blah, blah. And um, I have given you that email I have email that email well. which we will enter into evidence. Okay. Thank you. Um, I basically got a pat on the head. We back and forth a, a little bit, but I was told they're not experimental and um, we're not going to mandate all nurses have them, but we're going to follow what public health says. 
Um, after that, I phoned the Canadian Nurses Association because they are the people who have uh, provided the code of ethics for nurses. And what really troubled me at the time and still is that I phoned because I was afraid to email. I was somehow afraid to have an electronic footprint just by asking some questions. And I realized at that point that we'd really lost the ability to advocate, and yet we are required by law to advocate. So the next thing uh, was in February 2022, um, in collaboration with some other nursing colleagues, we submitted four resolutions to the Nova Scotia College of Nursing so that we could have some discussion. We thought maybe they'll never get passed, but at least we could have some discussion and some debate because that hasn't been happening at all. Um, the four um, resolutions, one was about aspirating to avoid injecting directly into the bloodstream. Another was about reporting adverse events. We wanted them to make sure nurses knew to, they had to do that. Uh, another was advocating to not mandate vaccines for children and adolescents. And another was advocating to end the use of the mandates and the passports in Nova Scotia. We got nowhere uh, with that. Basically, you know, they were polite and let us know that really it would be a nursing association that would deal with such things. But in Nova Scotia, we don't have an association anymore. We just have a little bit of a, a Facebook page presence, but we don't. So it was like you could go there, but we didn't have there to go. <laughs> um, so I felt like I had exhausted what I could do through the processes that were established for nurses. Um, so I emailed and I phoned MLAs, MPs, the Governor General, the Prime Minister's office. <laughs> um, and I did get a couple of calls back, but more pats on the head and we'll do what public health says. Thank you, Ms. Patton. Could I just, could you, yeah, you're yeah. actually out of time, but okay. can, can you wrap up very quickly then? Okay, I'll just quickly read this. In closing, thank you. I can't believe that we, we got to this in Canada. Uh, I'm trying to understand how we got here, and one of the things I think happened was it was a lot about fear. So I think we need to have information and not use fear. Um, we had processes in place to guide us, but we didn't use them, and I think that was because Politicians took over healthcare, and they were guided by the pharmaceutical industry, not health professionals and scientists and leaders who developed the guidelines for just this kind of situation. Politicians are about power, and the pharmaceutical industry is about profiting. Neither is about health. This pandemic response was managed by politicians who Canadians have allowed to have too much power. They followed recommendations by the pharmaceutical company who made too much profit and cut corners and did lousy research. This inadequately researched vaccine is now in the childhood immunization schedule in some places. I'm not sure if it's in Nova Scotia, but they were talking about that. I think politicians acted outside their scope of practice. If I did that as a nurse, I'd be in trouble. They practice healthcare without a license. Surely that's not legal. They do not have the knowledge, skill, ability, and judgment to safely, ethically, and compassionately tell health professionals what to do, who to do it to, and how to do it. If they were nurses, I would submit a complaint to their college stating they acted outside their scope of practice. I'm going I don't to, think I'm going to stop you there. Okay. I'm okay. going to stop you there you. and just see if we have some questions from the panel. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. 
Thank you for your testimony. Um, I had a couple of questions around uh, your thoughts on informed consent. Uh, first of all, I'm just wondering if you've had any um, formal training on it. Is there any, anything as part of your nursing training? Oh, yes, yes. Um, in, in nursing school, through my diploma program, also through my baccalaureate program, and reinforced during orientation for any job that I had. Yep. Okay. Thank you. And do you know if there's anything about conform, informed consent in the nursing code of ethics that you've been talking about? Oh, yes. Yes, it's required. We are not allowed <laughs> to provide nursing care without informed consent. And when we are, if a physician was to prescribe something that I thought was not appropriate for somebody, maybe a physician prescribed something like 100 milligrams of something, and I know this person has chronic renal failure, and that's too high a dose for them, then I'm not allowed to give it, and I'm required to question them. And if they say, oh, give it anyway, then I have to go over their head. So, okay. Thank you. Uh, one other uh, area you spoke about was about uh, gathering information and adverse event reporting. Um, can nurses complete adverse event reports? My understanding is they can, but my understanding is what I've seen in practice is that we typically don't. Um, so usually it's physicians who do, but if you read um, the instructions online of, you know, any health professional um, is able to do it. So I had assumed during the pandemic we'd really make sure every, all the nurses knew you can do that and this is how you do it. Right. And we made it easy for you. So you yourself were never asked to prepare one or never, you never actually prepared one? Um, I did submit a couple oh, you did. Uh, okay. for a, a couple of clients who had problems that they had reported to their doctors and their doctors um, said that they weren't going to uh, report it and I asked the clients if they wanted me to do it for them. Okay. Uh, thank you. You're welcome. Maybe a quick uh, medical question about aspiration because I've seen a lot of recent literature on that. I was not aware of that really before. Uh, in your best, I would say, uh, professional opinion, uh, would you say that the lack of aspiration, in other words, the direct injection in intravenous, could be actually the source of many of the side effects that we've seen? Um, in my own opinion, um, I think that it's, it's possible, and I've had some other nurses share with me their wondering, do you think it's possible that with some of the things we've heard about at young men and athletic young men with big biceps, they're going to have bigger blood vessels. Mm -hmm. So we're wondering, is it possible that maybe we're hitting a blood vessel and giving the vaccine directly into the bloodstream by mistake and we don't know? And then they maybe develop more of the cardiovascular problems or the sudden issues, but I don't know that. But it's something I wonder. Thank you, Ms. Patton. Thank you.
Elizabeth, do you um, affirm that you will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Yes, I do. Thank you. Can you state your full name? Yes, uh, my name is Elizabeth Cummings. And uh, Ms. Cummings, where do you come from today to be here? I come from Coal Harbor, Nova okay. Scotia. All right. Now, I understand that you received two Pfizer shots, one in May and the other in July of 2021. Yes. Um, why did you vaccinate? Uh, I vaccinated because I take care of both of my elderly parents. One is ambulatory and one is not. And at the time, uh, Dr. Strang and uh, Ian Rankin had advocated that uh, it was it was proper to protect uh, our older community by vaccinating uh, if you were going to be around uh, the elderly. And I absolutely, without question, uh, took their directive and uh, did my part. Okay. Did you have any adverse reactions following the first shot? No, I did not. And did you have any adverse reactions following the second shot? Well, yes, I certainly did. And so what happened? Well, the, 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 first, the first shot was fine. It was just uh, like a sore arm. But the second one, I had the, the sore arm while I was sitting there in the 15-minute uh, timeout period, and I, I started to develop a headache there. And I started pressing my temples, and I'm like, oh, that's strange. So I went home, and by the time the evening had hit, my neck and my whole head, like around, my, around the base of my neck, and it started to spread across my skull, um, it, it incapacitated me for three days. I could not move. And in addition to that headache was a nerve pain that was surprisingly just on the left side of my body. And it was confusing because it was literally the left side of my body. But which the, arm did you have the shot in? I don't know if that... Excuse me? Do you know which arm you had the shot in? I had that in my left arm. Okay. Yeah. Um, so that, uh, the headache, like I said, lasted uh, for three days. And then the, the nerve pain was constant. And then that ramped up over a couple of months. But then like into the fourth day afterwards, so the headache had just subsided, so thankfully that went away. And then I was given like a day with just the nerve pain, and then all of a sudden, for the first time in my life, when I haven't even had a cold sore, I developed shingles that spread all over my neck, which you can still see some of the scar from that, and it went across my chest, and it was blistering, it was pretty bad. So what I did for that was I took my top off and I, I couldn't wear clothes. It was too uncomfortable. So I uh, washed with soap and water, peroxide, alcohol for five days, and then finally that subsided and went away. But the nerve pain continued, uh, and I tried to deal with it myself by yoga, stretching, um, I knew it wasn't normal to have that kind of nerve pain, like it wasn't a pinched nerve, because my skin, all of my skin hurt too. Mm -hmm. So if I was rubbing my pants or my shirt against mm -hmm. the, my skin too much, it became very raw. Did you and see anyone for this? I Well, but you couldn't. Pardon you, me? You, you couldn't at that time. There was They were taking elderly patients, and they were... 
you couldn't you couldn't see anybody you, there was no there was nobody to see you had to deal with it yourself like there was not a lot of so then by the time October hit um, I was in so much pain at that point um, that I went to the chiropractor and I talked to him about it and I said you know I got nerve pain but it it's confusingly it's got skin pain too so he after about five times I limped very badly out of the the last uh, session that I had with him and I thought okay I can't do that again that's not going to work this is the fifth session it's actually made things worse so then I called uh, my doctor that just started to take they just started to take patients back but they were only taking the elevated cases that were in house visits so the receptionist gave me a phone call appointment so then when I made the phone call appointment my doctor said I can't give you anything without giving you a physical exam because you're talking about physical pain and I said well I, this is just the way I was directed so then I had to wait even longer until uh, November it hit and <clears throat> I went in and he prescribed me he did he he I talked to him about the the uh, symptoms that I was having from the vaccine and it happened immediately and he did acknowledge the fact that nerve pain was one of them and he died he he gave me a prescription for uh, pregabalin so I took that and then I went to a follow-up visit with him and then at that follow-up visit I asked for an exemption because at that point they started talking about boosters and I was afraid that I was going to get a job mm -hmm. and they were going to mandate this booster or require me to have a booster so I wanted to be on the exemption list. Were you able to secure the exemption? No I was not. He told me um, that he picked up a piece of paper in his office and he said that that piece of paper said that unless I had an overnight visit in a hospital from a side effect, I could not be put on that exemption list. And did you speak with him about whether or not to complete an adverse event form? Or did he speak with you about no, that? I, no, you, I you didn't You don't know, know whether he I did? I didn't know what that was at that point. Okay, all right. And there's no indications that he filled one of those out for you? I, I am unaware if he did. I don't, I don't know. He, he does all of his little paperwork. Well, I don't know. And are you still on the pregabalin for the nerve pain? Yes, I unfortunately am in the middle of a, a relapse right now, okay. unfortunately. And what, if any, other measures did you take to address the, the concerns that you had about the vaccine? Well, um, the, 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 the only recourse that I had at that point because um, was, I guess what happened was, um, I, I noticed in March of uh, 2022 um, that there was a Pfizer uh, dump of the safety data. And um, so at that point, I read the uh, cumulative uh, 5.3.6 uh, safety events and I noticed, like, I'm not a doctor, I'm just an electrician. I don't, I don't really understand much. But I do understand adverse events. And when I read that cumulative 
report and I saw the nine pages of adverse events, I became very alarmed. And herpes uh, zoster, which uh, there was also meningitis, and there was certain neuralgias, and I thought, that's everything that happened to me. Like, everything. So I got really, you know, I, I felt kind of betrayed. So what I did was I uh, tried to put it where I thought my complaint where it was supposed to go. So I sent a complaint to the uh, Health Canada. Because Health Canada, if you, if you look on their website, they have statements uh, that they uh, approved the Pfizer vaccine, that they deemed after a, a stringent, uh, you know, uh, that they, what do you call it, analyzation of it, that it was uh, safe to use. And they did that in October 2020. So I thought that's where I needed to go to complain to the fact that I took two Pfizer vaccines and I became injured from the second one. What they did was they returned my email saying that uh, I should have had a complaint with the pharmacist because I asked the pharmacist about an insert and the second uh, Pfizer uh, vaccine, I asked him if he had any information mm -hmm. with an insert and he said that there was no information. And they told me that I needed to contact the Nova Scotia College of uh, Pharmacists to make a complaint, but I found that confusing because he didn't make the insert. Like, I found that strange. Let's, let's go back to the, your visit with the pharmacist. Is that who administered the second dose? Yes. A pharmacist? Yes. And so you were asking the pharmacist for the insert with the ingredient list or with... I asked just him a, about the, the, the safety data or the, okay. and the, the, uh, any kind of information about the vaccine itself because I was starting to see some alarming things online that were concerning me, and I asked him about... After he told me that there was no insert, mm -hmm. um, I asked him what his thoughts were, and the only response he gave me was that he he didn't know whether he was going to vaccinate his 13-year-old daughter or not. Mm -hmm. So I had to make the the decision then. There's like a 15-minute window to get your mm -hmm. your vaccination. You're huddled yeah. in, and then you're huddled out. So and he didn't give you any other information on possible side effects. No, no, no. but I did ask. Okay. But, so, but. Fast so back, forwarding back to, to your story. story. Yeah. Fast forwarding to the complaint because I put all of that in the complaint mm -hmm. to Health Canada. In addition to that complaint with Health Canada, I had said that. And, and, it, and also, just to go back, so Health Canada placed it back on the pharmacist to say you should have had the discussion with your pharmacist. Yes, and yeah. this, these are all in those documents mm -hmm. that I had sent you uh, in a zipped file. Their response to that, along with my complaint. But in that complaint, I had I had said that. Um, it was a trial vaccine um, that I wasn't given an exemption, that I bled from the PCR tests, that I was masked uh, over and over and over again, which was, which was harmful to me. And uh, one of the, the two most important things that I put in that was that they allowed the authorization because that's the whole reason I went to them was because they authorized the use in Canada. Mm -hmm. And then the last thing that I closed with in the letter was the informed consent, saying, you know, and I even embedded the, the link to the Pfizer documents in the email saying, you know, 
had I been given that information because you state that you know you've reviewed this, then I, if I had been given this informed consent, I would not have taken that vaccine. So then they, the response they gave me besides that was that I basically needed to go f to VAERS, which was uh, Canada Vigilance, to fill out my adverse events. So I was like, okay, I'll do that. What is this? So I studied it. Are you it. talking about the, um, the vaccine injury support program? The VAERS, yeah. They sent me to the Canada Vigilance VAERS. So I had to figure out how to fill out that paperwork. So I did. I put in my lot number and I put in what I was prescribed. And they asked me if it was uh, reoccurring or not. I had to put unknown because I didn't know at that point. And then it was it. They, they, it stopped there. So then, um, so there was no recourse. It was just, you're injured, you're done. So okay. um, then, interestingly enough, uh, July 11th came and I noticed a Dr. Philip Oldfield had uh, advocated that he had already talked to Dr. Tam and uh, the Board of Physicians, I, I believe in Ontario, mm -hmm. and that he was giving no information. Uh, they weren't uh, responding to him, so he decided to elevate his complaint to the International Criminal Court. And he was asking Canadians that were injured if they would call or email the International Criminal Court and, and explain their injuries. So I did do that. I, I, in the subject line, I put his complaint number, gave them the exact complaint that I gave to Canada, to Health Canada, and um, I told them that I wanted to either make a complaint against, uh, I said Health Canada et al., because mm -hmm. I didn't know who that encompassed. And I said that, that I wanted to uh, add to his complaint and if, if that wasn't satisfactory, that we could make another complaint with crimes against humanity uh, for the informed consent, mm -hmm. for all the things that I had already outlined, but the, for the vaccine injured as well. And I didn't, I had to follow up twice. I didn't get a res response from that either. Mm -hmm. So in closing, um, you know, I've been an advocate for... Uh, for people that have been vaccine injured and uh, the people that were mandated uh, from day one. And I think we've all went through uh, a period where loss of friends, they think that we're conspiracy theorists. And I've had people say to me before, you know, you, you were a rational human being. You were, mm -hmm. but you're, you're no different you're than a Trumper now. now. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, what does President Trump have to do with me as a Canadian? I don't understand what the correlation is here. I'm complaining about being vaccine injured and you're calling me Trump. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Unacceptable. And so how are you doing now with respect to your um, condition? Well, I mean, it has its ups and downs. I've had, I had the original prescription, then I had to get it refilled. Uh, so that was December uh, 2021. Then I had to get another prescription because I had two, two, two bottles there. Then I had to get another one in the summer. So June, July, I had to get re another batch. Mm -hmm. And then just recently, I had to get another. So, so now, unfortunately, I'm going to have to look at this personally 
and I'm, as a chronic, something that's chronic, that's reoccurring, because mm -hmm. now it's over a year and a half, and it's still it's still going on. So, mm -hmm. and it's it's uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable. It's mm -hmm. it's uh, you, I can be sitting there, and my, the pain is just I, I'll have to get up because if I'm still if I'm moving if I'm moving in a wrong direction, it'll it'll inhibit me lifting. Uh, like I was a robust. A very healthy individual before this so not being able to lift 50 pounds for me is that that hurts my position so uh, I, ha I have an interview next week and I'm worried that I'm gonna have to self-disclose that I may not be able to pick up an electrical panel to drill it in the side mm -hmm. because I can't lift it now if if I have another relapse mm -hmm. so so you know I mean everybody's got their story and and this uh, fortunately I've got my life I know there's a lot of people that don't. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for your testimony, yes. Ms. Cummings. I'm yes. going to turn you over to the board. They may oh, have some yes, questions. Oh, all right. Thank, thank you kindly. so much for listening to this broadcast of the National Citizens Inquiry. It's so important to get the testimonies of Canadians out there, so please share on all your channels and invite your friends and family to listen in. As always, you can head over to nationalcitizensinquiry.ca to sign our petition and find out more on how you can take personal responsibility. From the National Citizens Inquiry, thank you. The world is watching.